Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Oregon State Athletic Director Scott Barnes, former college basketball player at Fresno State, and father, husband, recent survivor of a uh, heart attack uh, as he was being inducted into the Bulldog Hall of Fame. Put yourself in his shoes. And then also slide on the loafers of Pat Chun, the athletic director at Washington State guy who's worked in the Big Ten Conference at Ohio State, been dealing with a a different set of parameters since arriving as the athletic director at Washington State. Those two guys have seemingly been left behind, and their schools, left behind by Oregon and Washington as they move to the Big Ten. I don't want to bang on Oregon and Washington. I think, you know what, I actually think they've done enough in the last two weeks They've had enough. People have blamed the Ducks, blamed the Huskies. It's easy to do. It's easy to make them the face of this whole thing. Pac-12 would have stayed together if Oregon just would have decided it was okay taking a little less money and a little more risk. I get it. In some socialist uh, world, that works. But not in the world that you and I live in. All these universities will do what's best for themselves. And you can probably argue when you when you slide over to their side of the equation, that doing what's best for oneself, uh, you know, the trustees deciding Oregon should do what's best for Oregon or Washington should do what's best for Washington or, um, you know, your family should do what's best for your family, the trustees of those entities um, ultimately have a duty, a fiduciary duty to do what's best. But I want you to slide on the shoes of Scott Barnes and Pat Chun on today's show because I'm going to ask you throughout the course of today's show, what you would do when put in their position. To uh, accurately describe what's going on, Stanford and Cal seemingly are in the lifeboat with you if you're Washington State and Oregon State. But Stanford's looking towards the shore. Stanford's got its cell phone out. It's texting with the ACC. Stanford's one vote away on Friday from getting membership into the ACC. And, And certainly I think the Big Ten shouldn't be very far beyond that, even if Stanford goes to, uh, you know, let's say the American Conference or goes to, hey, we're going to rebuild the Pac-4. How much can you trust Stanford right now if you're Oregon State and Washington State? Hell, how much can you trust Stanford if you're Cal? I had the commissioner of a current college football conference tell me today on a phone call that if he were Cal, he wouldn't trust Stanford. He says none of them can trust none of them. At this point, there, you know, again, to use the analogy, there are a bunch of gunfighters in a saloon. They've all uh, they're all smiling above the table at each other and they have guns drawn pointed at each other's kneecaps under the table. That's kind of what is going on in college football and college athletics in general, because on one hand, if you were the athletic directors at Washington State and Oregon State, you've got options. That's good. It's not like you have nowhere to go. Uh, it's not like you have to face being an independent or being left behind alone in the Pac-12 conference. They're not alone. They've got a lifeboat. And currently they have three other schools along with each of them inside that life raft. But Stanford, you know, itchy, restless, 
cabin fever, call it what you what it is. Stanford has options that the others do not. If if an opportunity presents itself in the ACC, Stanford will go, and Cal may go with them. But if uh, the ACC says now we're only going to take one school, Stanford could go alone and leave Cal behind. Stanford could go be independent if it wanted to, and probably would have a better opportunity to make it as an independent athletic department than the others. But if it decides to stay, if it decides to fight, if it decides to go, you know, hey, you're saying there's a chance, and wants to rebuild the Pac-12, can you trust that? Now, there are a couple things that, you know, I brought up over the last couple of weeks, and especially the last couple of days, uh, that would make you'd give me pause from moving on. One, there's some NCAA tournament distribution money that is due to the Pac-12 conference that could be interesting if the Pac-12 stays the Pac-12 in name, meaning that those tournament units belong to the conference, not the schools that earned it, and you have as much as 60 or $70 million a year over the next six years flowing into the conference, and I would hesitate to just give that away if there was an opportunity to either rebuild the Pac-4 into something or merge and create a division within the Mountain West that's called the Pac-12 or a partnership with the Mountain West that's called the Pac-12, and you keep those NCAA tournament units, that's interesting to me. Now, if I'm Oregon and Oregon State, I'm probably exploring that as a first option because being alongside the other three gives you a little better footing. But how much can you trust it? Do do you trust Stanford? Do you trust that Stanford will stay in that position for very long? And that's where it sort of disintegrates for me as I look at this and I say, look, even if they did rebuild this thing, you would need some semblance of a grant of rights or some guarantee from Stanford that it wasn't going to jump the first opportunity that presented itself because one will. The ACC tonight could come back and go, hey, you know what? We changed our mind. We got one more vote. Stanford would be like, see ya. Out the door. Uh, the Big Ten Conference could come calling in 6 to 12 months and go, hey, uh, Stanford, we'd like to have you now. Gone. Probably with Cal, too. Or maybe not. Cal might be left behind as well. So I think each of these schools has got to do what's best for itself. It's got to be in survival mode, so to speak. You know, we've all seen those reality TV shows play themselves out on Survivor and the island and the alliances that are formed and the backstabbing that happens. Is it all that different than what we watched go down a couple of Fridays ago in the Pac-12 conference, ultimately, it was like, you know, people were putting each other's torches out left and right, leaving, bailing, going home. Uh, you know, and in the end, there are four schools left behind, and I wouldn't call them winners for being left behind. They've been left without a guarantee of a TV deal. They've been left without security. They've been left without the cover of each other and essentially abandoned on that island, and they've got to make a decision. So put yourself in the shoes of Scott Barnes. I'm going to ask our guest coming up at 324, Spencer McLaughlin. He hosts a podcast called Locked On Pac-12. He also hosts a Oregon Ducks podcast, Locked On the Ducks. We'll talk a little football as well. But I'm going to ask him you know, to kind of play out the AAC, the American Athletic Conference, or the American as it's known, uh, it's got a commissioner named Mike Oresco, who is the former Big East commissioner when the Big East imploded. Oresco sought uh, refuge by creating the American Conference, and it's become kind of like this uh, Father Flanagan's wayward home for lost schools. Uh, you know, it's become this entity that will take schools that are adrift and looking to get to a Power Five, and and he has placed several schools in good homes. But it is a very transient conference. 
And when I say the American, I'll bet that your reaction to that, being somebody who's probably listening to the show in the Pacific time zone or the mountain time zone, that your reaction to that is kind of uh, furrowing your brow and being a little puzzled as to who's in that conference, not knowing that Tulane and Rice and SMU are in that conference, not knowing that, you know, as you saw Tulane played USC in a bowl game on New Year's Day, that that was uh, the eighth American team in the last decade to make a New Year's Six Bowl appearance. Like the American, the AAC and the American Conference, uh, you know, is is got a little bit of footing. And, and But again, it is a transient conference. And we're talking about Charlotte and East Carolina and Memphis and Navy and South Florida and Tulsa and University of Texas, San Antonio. I mean, it's not glamorous. Is that a place that Oregon State and Washington State could matter? Could they matter immediately? Could they matter more there than the Mountain West Conference? A uh, little bit more TV money in the American than the Mountain West Conference? And uh, there is some speculation that the TV money could be marginally or nominally better in that uh, you have better TV markets in the American. The geography certainly doesn't work as well. But you have uh, some opportunities there that don't exist in the Mountain West Conference. Or do you just go to the Mountain West knowing that, hey, you're going to bet on yourself in the next couple of years. Try to use the Mountain West Conference to get yourself into the expanded college football playoff in 2024 and beyond. And try to improve the one thing you have control over, your brand, your football brand in particular. Jonathan Smith in Oregon State, Jake Dickert in Washington State, can they control the controllables, so to speak, as coaches say, and put themselves in position to matter in the next round of realignment. And that's what the name of the game is. I wrote it today at johnconzano.com. There's so many things that are up in the air. But I have to be real with you. One of the things that's really up in the air when it comes to you know, what Oregon and Oregon State should do is, is rooted in the comment that Nebraska Athletic Director Trev Alberts made over the weekend. Gave an interview to the Lincoln Journal Star, and he said, you know, he said the quiet part out loud, so to speak. Trev Alberts basically came out and said that history is unkind to conferences that have been uh, afraid to expand. He said, quote, um, I don't believe it's done. It's never done. It's more likely than not that there will be continued periods of angst. I believe that the next go-round will be far more disruptive than anything we're currently engaged in. We need to prepare ourselves mentally for that, end quote. Not just mentally. You know, Nebraska, Oregon State, Washington State, Oregon, Washington, I don't care what school it is. It's not just a mental preparation for them. For them, it is actually a business decision. Oregon and Washington made it a couple Fridays ago. They made a business decision that prepares them to be part of the haves moving forward in college football. Now the business decision needs to come from Oregon State and Washington State. Keep in mind, TV deal for the Big Ten runs through 2030. Big 12, 2031. SEC, 2034. ACC, 2036. I'm giving you those dates because they're very important as it pertains to the next round of chaos. I reached out to Bob Thompson, the retired president of Fox Sports Networks, this morning. He told me, circle two years before the end date of those deals on your calendar. The negotiations for television start 12 to 24 months before the expirations. He said, quote, you really want to know the composition of your conference going into the TV negotiations, end quote. So you're going to want to know 
if you're the Big Ten Conference, if you have Stanford right around 2027, 2028. So this isn't like a lifetime decision that Stanford's making here, flirting with the ACC or maybe standing pat and waiting for the Big Ten. It's this is like a three- to four-year thing. And really, it's more like a two- to three-year thing if you're Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal. And, and frankly, it's why I think Oregon made the decision it made. It wasn't rooted in, hey, let's hose our rival and take the money and uh, dance away and kind of snicker and we'll go, hey, maybe we'll play that rivalry game going forward or we really want to play it, but we may not play it as part of our conference. That's not what Oregon was doing. Oregon was trying to look around the corner, so to speak. Oregon was trying to position itself for the next round of realignment and make sure that it was in the Big Ten Conference, which is a conference that matters. The Pac-12 did not, and the Pac-12 did so many things wrong. We could unpack it. We could spend a week unpacking it, but I don't know if there's any use at this point to look back beyond the simple statement of, hey, it was a failure of leadership at a variety of levels, the presidential level, the commissioner level, two commissioners, failure of leadership, failure by the consulting firm. Great. Move forward. What can you control now? Well, you can control the fact that the Big Ten Conference is seemingly like the NFC, and the SEC is like the AFC. And the Big 12 and the ACC are looking over going, okay, in this next round of realignment, you know, somebody else is going to get got. You know, somebody's going to get had. And somebody in the end is going to end up being consolidated in the way that the Pac-12 was. And it may come within those conferences. Like, I could foresee a situation where the SEC looks over at a Vanderbilt or the Big Ten looks over at Northwestern and goes, hey, you know, you're a great academic institution. It's wonderful that you've been part of our conference, but you're just not getting it done, and we would rather have Notre Dame, and we would rather have a Stanford program that we think could compete better athletically than you can, and uh, we'll take the academics of it, but uh, we're going to throw some of this out now, and we're going to consolidate even further. I mean, those decisions could be could be on the horizon. But I think it's interesting to look at Oregon State. You know, Pullman and at Washington State and Corvallis at Oregon State, you can't do anything about that if you're those institutions. It's not like you're going to grow those cities and the TV markets overnight. Really, you're talking about Portland as the TV market for Oregon State. And you're talking about Seattle as the possible TV market or the shoulder market for Washington State. You're really just talking about the potential for those schools to compete on the national level, get to the playoff as often as they can in the next two to three years, and show the Big Ten and the SEC and the Big 12 and the ACC to some extent that you can matter as a football program. That's what you can control. But I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Scott Barnes. How long do you wait for Stanford? How much do you trust Stanford? Do you rebuild the pack four and say, okay, this is the path. We can get to the playoff here. Or do you pull the ripcord and go, hey, we need to be in the Mountain West or we need to be in the American because as soon as we get our feet on the ground in those conferences, we are so much more equipped to compete than those members. And I can tell you there's a fight brewing right now between the Mountain West and the American. They're going to be fighting over these four Pac-12 schools, trying to get one or two or three or four of them. I don't think there's any shot Stanford and Cal would go to the Mountain West. It just doesn't fit them academically, doesn't fit them culturally. But I kind of wonder if the American grabbed all four teams, could it create a pod in the Pacific time zone and say, hey, we're a nationwide conference and bring ESPN in on the deal? 
Uh, or do you just say, if you're Scott Barnes and you're Pat Chun, the leadership at Washington State and Oregon State, do you just say, hey, we got to think for ourselves? Because Stanford, the minute they get a chance to go to the ACC, they are bolting. They're out of here. We can't trust them. We can't count on them. Did you learn anything in conference realignment is what I'm asking you. 503-417-7575 is the number. I want you to put yourself in their shoes. What do you do? Stephen, I'm putting you on the spot. You are the AD at those two schools. What's your thinking today? Well, first of all, uh, John, I'm not trusting anybody. I think we've learned that, that you cannot trust any of these presidents or ADs or you know conference commissioners, anybody. You can't trust any of those people. So, number one, if I'm Scott Barnes, I'm looking out for myself. And I have to think what's best for Oregon State. I do think this. I do think if all else fails, doesn't it seem like the Mountain West is a landing spot if everything else crumbles like they could probably get to the mountain west i think no matter what and so i think potentially the best option is to try to get to the aac with stanford and cal and washington state and have a west coast pod because the aac is known to be okay with adding or uh you know losing members to bigger conferences and i think that's the ultimate goal is to try to get into one of the bigger conferences if i'm oregon state because you can you've proven in football you can compete on that level and so I think the Mountain West is a little below the AAC, you know, prestige-wise and, you know, the way they would lose their members to a, you know, another conference. So I think if I'm Oregon State, I'm really taking the AAC uh, seriously, and I would wait on Stanford to see what they can do because I do think the Mountain West is always going to be there for Oregon State and for Washington State because those cultures do kind of fit in with that conference. So I don't trust Stanford. I don't trust Cal. I don't trust Washington State. I don't trust anybody. But I do think that I would wait it out and try to go to the AAC. I think that's the best option for Oregon State. I, I keep looking at the AAC schools, and I go, okay, you've got Charlotte, East Carolina, Florida, Atlantic, Memphis. Not interested in those schools if I'm Pac-12 members. Navy's interesting, um, the Naval Academy. Rice is interesting because academically Rice is a, uh, you know, it's a top uh, 55 school nationally. SMU's interesting. It's a top 75 school uh, Stanford wouldn't be embarrassed to be in that company of Navy, Rice, SMU, but it falls it falls apart in some way geographically because you've got Temple, you've got Florida Atlantic, you've got you know South Florida. You have some schools in there that geographically are going to tax your baseball program, your women's basketball program, and. I don't know, but do you create a pod? Do you that, try to say, let's do a merger? What do you do? That's, yeah, that, that's what I would go for. If you can create the four-team pod in the West Coast, I think that's going to help a lot, and I think that would help reduce some of the travel, and I think the AAC would be you know, fine with trying to work with that. So I do think if I'm going to the AAC, I need the other three pack four remaining schools to come with me as well. Like I, I can't say that I don't Oregon State to go by themselves or Oregon State and Washington State. You need all four. You need that pod out there. If that doesn't work, then I think Mountain West is, you know, kind of a safe option. It's a safe school, right? You know, we all had the safe school we all went to. Uh, mine was community college, so that, you know, I, I, you know, we'll get that. But I, I think the AAC that's probably the best option. You can get all four there. I think, I think you can elevate yourself in that with the other different markets across the nation and uh, get the brand out there. I think they're taking different sales pitches too, because I think the Mountain West Conference has been very patient with the four members. Mountain West is, you know, they've met with the presidents, Gloria Navarez, the commissioner of the Mountain West. She's a former deputy commissioner in the Pac-12. I think she's sort of taken the mindset of, um, you know, we're here. Our arms are open. I'm sure she's had conversations with the schools. I've reached out and asked her. She says, I, I cannot confirm that. You know, they're not going to tell you. But based on my conversations with several of the Pac-4 schools that are left, 
safe to say they they I think they're comfortable that knowing that they have a spot in the Mountain West if they want it. So the question is, do they go try to build something with the American, who, by the way, is being far more aggressive? I see a little bit of a three-quarter court press here from the American that has just started in the last 48 hours with its its commissioner, Mike Oresco, obviously meeting with members, uh, all four members, and has talked with all four members. And I and they're they're starting to push, like when you see the stories nationally, they're starting to push talking points. Um, you know, I had a communications person who works on behalf of that conference reach out to me and say, hey, do you have any questions about us? Do you need anything? I noticed you're writing about us. And, you know, it's just there's a there's a uh, there's a three quarter court press going on from the American. And I think they're smart to do it. I think they're going, hey, these are commodities. These help our conference because these two schools like you think of Oregon State, Washington State in particular as, hey, they got left behind. They got picked last. But when you frame it with the Mountain West Conference and the American, they're a group of five conferences that are fighting to be more relevant than each other. They're in a battle. And they're trying to say, hey, we have a better TV share. We have a better TV deal. We have better schools. We have better geography. Like, they're, you know, it's a little bit of a beauty pageant going on with these group of five conferences who are all trying to say, hey, we want to be the landing spot for these schools because they add value to our conference. I'm a little hesitant, though. If I'm Oregon State and Washington State, to do anything before I know what Stanford's going to do. And, you know, probably pumping the brakes a little bit, but not too much. How much time do you have? What should they do? Spencer McLaughlin, he hosts a podcast called Locked on the Pac-12. I'm going to ask him that next. Spencer McLaughlin, we've had him on the show a few times. I love to get his perspective on the Ducks in particular. He hosts a podcast called Locked on Ducks, Locked on Pac-12. Spencer McLaughlin with us. Hey, um, let's kick around the Pac-4 thing, because I know you recorded a podcast about it. You've got some strong opinions. Um, it's dicey stuff. There's no perfect answer. But what's the right thing for the remaining four schools in the Pac-12, Spencer? Well, I think for Oregon State and Washington State specifically, if you're not getting into a Power 5 league, and there doesn't appear to be an appetite right now, for that to happen from the Big 12 or the ACC or the Big 10 or, or anybody, and of course the SEC isn't doing any of this sort of stuff, then I, I think your best option is the Mountain West. If you're Stanford and Cal, you know, as much as it, uh, it makes me feel kind of bad to, to say this, I think the best option for all parties that, that remain is for the pack to just fully dissolve, to just have everybody go their separate ways and try to find the, the best home that they can. And for Stanford and Cal, that'd be either the Big Ten or, or the ACC, I I feel like they would wear down one of those conferences eventually. I know their football tradition hasn't been great the last uh, four or five years or so, but they have such a big market and they're such strong academic powers. I, I don't know how they get left out of the Power Five forever. It might be a short stint in you know a Mountain West or as an independent, but I, I can't see them staying out of there forever. But then for Oregon State, Washington State, I, I think the Mountain West, is going to give you the most stability. The American is a very transient conference right now, and I don't think that's necessarily going to stop. You have teams in there like Rice, Tulane, and SMU that are are all, you know, getting mentioned in uh, as potential realignment candidates now and in the future. And I think that could continue. And sure, you have that in the Mountain West, but I think it's more stable. And I think if you put Oregon State, Washington State in the Mountain West right now, John, that is the premier. G5 football conference and a win in that conference championship game probably gets you an, an auto bid into uh, into the college football playoff, or at least gives you a very good chance to do so. I'm going to unpack a couple things and kick it around with you. Let's compare 
Mountain West Conference and uh, the American Athletic Conference, or the American as yeah. they're known. Uh, the Mountain West Conference members currently getting about $5 million a year in their media rights deal. Maybe Washington State, Oregon State join. That boosts a little bit. The Americans getting about $7 million a year. I think, you know, as you talk to proponents of the American, they'll say, hey, look, the geography is not as favorable as the Mountain West, but you get to recruit the state of Texas more heavily. And, uh, you know, eight of the last 10 years, they put a, a, a team on a New Year's Day bowl game and, um, you know, you you bring Oregon State and Washington State into that conference, and now I sound like I'm selling the American. Uh, you, you know, you bring them in there, and you know they've they probably compete uh, it, just with Tulane. Maybe I mean we saw what Tulane did a year ago as the you know, as the only uh, potential team that could be in your way. You go into the Mountain West Conference, and you got Boise State, Fresno State. We all know what you know what what the Mountain West is about. Does that give you any pause? Any of that? Well, I think for Oregon State and Washington State, the, the American Conference might have that, that kind of you know shiny allure because they can make that statement that they've put teams in, uh, in, in New Year's Six games. But who have those teams been? I mean, aside from Tulane, it's been UCF and it's been Cincinnati that have been playing in, in those games, and those teams aren't there. And Oregon State and Washington State, whichever G5 conference they would go to, would of course bolster the lineup that that plays in that league significantly, and they would be able to contend in those leagues. But you know, for, for Oregon State, Washington State, is it going to do so much for you on the recruiting trail? Neither program has you know uh, made made its hay in the pack and had its best seasons with uh, with big time recruits. They've always had to do more with less, and that's something that both coaches, I think are familiar with and are good at as well. Jake Dicker up at uh, Washington State and Jonathan Smith at, at Oregon State. And, yeah, it might, it might give you a little bit more access to Texas, but h- how appealing is Corvallis, Oregon, or Pullman, Washington to kids from the state of Texas to begin with when you have those brands that are, you know, not as powerful, as, that are literally not power brands in this in this hypothetical that we're, we're laying out. So I, I think the lineup of teams – going forward is still stronger at their best with Boise State, Fresno State, and San Diego State. Now they have some rebuilding to do, but really those three teams have been really good, and they've been beating up on each other quite a bit. I know Tulane had a great season a year ago, but they were a 2-10 team the year prior, so they still have to prove that it wasn't just a a flash in the pan. I I get the allure of the American, but I think the geography, the the stability and pedigree of the Mountain West, I, I think that gives you the best shot. Spencer McLaughlin, Locked On Pac-12 podcast. He hosts it. Find it where you find your podcast. Spencer, um, play. I'm going to play devil's advocate. I I agree with a lot of what you're saying, and but and I also think it's a true dilemma. Like there's no real way out of this for those schools. I mean, they are in dire straits. And seeing as long as Stanford and Cal are alongside you, I would be tempted because I would view the Mountain West and I would view the American as fallback options. I would be tempted to sit tight. But I would need at some point a guarantee from Stanford or Cal that they're going to stick around. I just don't know if they're going to be willing to give it. Further, let me throw this wrinkle in there. You've got NCAA tournament units that are given to the conferences. They belong to the conference, not the individual teams. Six-year rolling basis, UCLA, USC, Oregon, Oregon State going to the Elite Eight. Um, the Pac-12 will get about 60 to $70 million per year over the next six years that will come in distributions. If they completely dissolve, those distributions go back to the original schools. If not, they belong to the conference and whoever stays behind. Does that give you any pause if you're one of the four remaining schools, knowing that you'd, you'd get a big chunk of that 60 to $70 million a year in the next six years? 
Well, it would make the pack a more appealing option for Washington State and Oregon State, but that information is currently available to Cal and Stanford, and they've kicked the tires on the Big Ten and the ACC already. And I, I, if I'm Oregon State and Washington State, as shady and dark and ominous as it sounds, I, I can't trust a word that would come out of Cal or Stanford's mouth that says anything to the effect of we're committed to being here in, in the pack because everybody's committed until – uh, uh, until a better offer comes along. You're only as loyal as, as, as your options. And if the options become more attractive where you can guarantee you're in a power conference, I, I don't know how even with, you know, the, the factors that you discuss, which which make it appealing for sure. I, I don't know how Cal and Stanford say no to that. You know, nobody has so far. I don't know why they would be this. Uh, maybe because they're Cal and Stanford and they prioritize academics so much, but either conference they'd be going to would be premier academic conferences. The ACC and the Big Ten are, uh, they've got a bunch of great schools. They've got a lot of great research institutions and Cal and Stanford fit in to those really, really well. So it, it just seems like it would be if not when the Big Ten or ACC decides to change their mind and try to get them at, you know, reduce like the Big Ten with, uh, with, with with Oregon and Washington, you know, it was months ago that they were vetted and cleared, and then once the price got as low as possible, when the Pac-12 media deal was announced to be, you know, somewhere in the mid 20s for guaranteed money, they came to Oregon and Washington and said, yeah, we'll take you for, you know, whatever is 32 and a half, 35 million dollars. If they'd made that offer to Oregon and Washington, you know, membership in August 2022, it probably comes closer to 40 or 50 million dollars, but they got them on the cheap. So. I think that could be what the ACC and Big Ten are waiting for. Is a similar kind of let's wait until this is more advantageous for us going forward. But I just if I'm Oregon State, Washington State, that's what maybe I'd sell to Cal and Stanford. But I, I just don't know if I could trust anything that says, yeah, we're we're, we're going to stay here. We're not going anywhere because they, they've been they've been told that more than once. Yeah, the Grana rights that was ironclad. You'd need a TV deal. I think you know that's probably why Oliver Luck is on the scene and. Probably what he's trying to put together. See what he comes up with. Spencer McLaughlin with us. Uh, Spencer, the the goal here, you know, clearly Oregon and Washington were looking twenty years into the future, saying, "Hey, we want to get to where college football is going to be. We don't want to have to clamor our way into the club, uh, you know, at the eleventh hour. Let's get in the club, and then uh, we'll figure out where we fit, you know, as this consolidation continues to unfold." Oregon State and Washington State have a different equation. They now have to position themselves to get into the club. We heard Kirk Schultz, the president at Washington State, say that they will continue to fund their programs on a Power 5 level. For how long, who knows? But if they, you're right. If they go to the Mountain West Conference and they continue to fund at a Power 5 level, they should blow doors on the Mountain West. They should, they should be in that conference championship game every year. They'd be you know, generating a whole lot more revenue. But let me ask you from a strategic standpoint, what do you do if you're those two schools and you go, okay, we got left out? But we don't want to be left out when the next round of realignment and expansion happens. What can Oregon State and Washington State do? Because they can't change the media market. What can they control? They can control how much success they have or the the best opportunity that they give themselves. They can control how good the opportunity is. They provide themselves year in and year out to win and also build up a respectable brand. And, you know, I, I, I still go back to the Mountain West on that front. I don't think the American would be bad because it doesn't change their actual location. But I, I think playing in a conference that's established rather than one you scramble together is going to give you a stronger perception 
for the Big 12 down the line. I think that has to be the long-term goal for, for Oregon State and Washington State is if they're going to try and backdoor their way or find a way, you know, maybe knock uh, on, on, on the front door if they just make themselves too, uh, too appealing to pass up, I think the Big 12 is the conference that they'd have to be looking at there. So 12 has been very clear that they want to be in the Western time zone. They've got the Arizona schools. They've they've got Utah and BYU for the mountain time zone, but they are not yet out on the West Coast. And if they're going to look out there, Oregon State, Washington State, San Diego State would all be options there, and you can differentiate yourself from the Aztecs for a conference that doesn't prioritize academics as much and, uh, and, and research dollars and such as the Big 12 does not to the same extent that the ACC, Big 10, and Pac-12 do. And you can go and try and run that conference or be one of the big players and heavy hitters over there for the next five, six years. And then when the Big 12 media deal that got uh, signed slash extended in October is up, then they can put themselves at the front of of the Big 12's mind and say, hey, you're going to be looking for schools. You've wanted to go west. We are the best football teams out here. And we all know that that's that's what drives the bus on on the media rights and, and conference realignment front. All right, pivoting to the football itself, which I can't get I can't wait to get back to talking about. Question that you want answered in the preseason, maybe game 1 against Portland State because game 2 is big for Oregon as they go to Texas Tech. But what question lingers in your mind about this season's team and and maybe the early part of the season? How much better is the pass rush? Uh, I mean, last year I think the Oregon State game was a little bit more of a fluke than an indictment on the defense, which was really good against the run all season long, and the special teams put them in some bad spots. Don't get me wrong, they were really, really bad, and the bees just ran ran all over them, but that was more an aberration than the norm for Oregon defending the run last year. But defending the pass, it was bad all season long. They were giving up big plays to, to Jack Plummer down at Cal. They had Colorado have a long touchdown against them. They, they struggled defending the pass a season ago. And the biggest reason is they had their lowest pass rush rate and, and sack rate since uh, 2000 or 2001, I think, is uh, is the number. Like, it, it was a historically bad year getting after the quarterback. And, you know, I, I don't know how much you can learn in Portland State. You you can maybe see something, uh, but ultimately it has to come against Power 5 competition at the end of the day. And I, I just look at what their defensive line is this year with Jordan Birch, Mateo Uyunglele, you return Mace Funa, you bring back Popo Amavai, who missed last year with an injury. He's really, really old. I think he and I are like the same age. But he can can be another guy to, to bolster that defensive line and – you compare that to what they had a season ago when, you know, Trevin Maia had snaps and Braden Swinson had snaps and uh, DJ Johnson led the team in, in sacks. Those guys had, had their moments, but it just wasn't there consistently. So do they have better high-end talent? I think on paper they do. Do they have better depth? On paper they do, but games aren't played on paper. They're played on the football field, and just like you, John, I'm, I'm so ready to watch some football that actually means something to somebody. Yeah, I mean, I keep telling people, people keep saying, oh, you're so busy, it's been so crazy in the last year. And I said, yeah, uh, and, and in between all that, we've seen some games, seen some great games. So I'm excited. <laughs> Five teams in the top 18 in the AP preseason poll. Spencer McLaughlin, thank you. I appreciate you. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, John. Love that talk. What will Oregon State and Washington State do? What can they do? What should they do? Should they wait for Stanford and Cal? That's been the prevailing thought. The Mountain West Conference and the American uh, end up being uh, fallback options for Oregon State and Washington State. I think they have to figure this out sooner rather than later. You know, I've been told by others that they have till Thanksgiving. Drop dead would be 
January 1. I don't think you can wait that long. I think you have to get this sewed up before the start of the season. I think you kind of need some direction. You need to be able to tell your players, your recruits. You need to be able to tell your coaching staff what is happening in the in the near future. And it does start with Stanford and Cal, but at some point, Oregon State and Washington State have to come to the realization that they may be in this on their own. Coming up at 4 o'clock, Chris Benini of The Athletic will be joining us. He will be talking more in depth about Stanford and Cal and the overall landscape of the college football season. Oh, yeah, we have a season approaching. I had a poll over the weekend that I put out that gave a surprising result. I'll talk about it next. I don't know if you're on Twitter or whatever Twitter's calling itself these days, but I put out a couple of polls over the weekend. Uh, got a little bit of a surprising result on uh, on one of them. I asked... Which Pac-12 team in the Pacific Northwest will win the most regular season football games in 2023? The uh, Oregon State Beavers won that poll. 40% of the 4,030 people who voted in it picked the Beavers. 34% picked the Ducks. 18% picked the Huskies. 8% uh, picked Washington State. Maybe it's just more reflective of like more Oregon and Oregon State fans follow me on Twitter than Washington and Washington State fans, but I was surprised Washington only got 18% of the vote there. Uh, Steven, does that surprise you a little bit, or eh, it's Twitter? Uh, I mean, it is Twitter, but it did surprise me a little bit. I voted uh, for Washington, personally, and and my reasoning is because you're going to give me the best coach out of the four and the best quarterback out of the four, and I'm going to take that team every time. Uh, I think Kalen DeBoer, out of those four coaches, now I... I think Jonathan Smith is right behind Kalen DeBoer if I was ranking those coaches, but I'd still have DeBoer number one. And then you look at the quarterbacks, Michael Penix Jr., I think he's the best quarterback out of the bunch. And I know Bo Nix is right there as well, but, I mean, what Penix did last season, if he stays healthy again, that offense has a lot of room to even improve this season. So you give me the best quarterback, you give me the best coach, I'll take Washington all day. Uh, A couple of weird stories from the weekend. Story uh, uh, in baseball, Uh, Wander Franco. Ray's shortstop leaves giveaway day. That is his giveaway day as Dominican authorities are investigating whether he had a relationship with a minor. Um, This comes out of a social media post that uh, was put out there, 14-year-old girl and uh, a 22-year-old baseball player. Uh, in the center of this investigation, the Rays have placed him on a restricted list. He'll be out for six games. They explained his absence from the game over the weekend by saying they're giving him the day off. It's a giveaway day. It's the Franco kids 12 and under get a ball cap giveaway day, and he doesn't play in the game. Why not just address this head on if you're the Rays and just say, look, um, he's under investigation. We're not comfortable playing him. Why the whole charade about, oh, he's taking a day off? I don't know, man. It's it's just tough because I feel like, I mean, whether he is or not, like let's just say hypothetically he's not in a relationship with the 14-year-old, and I sure hope he's not. Like his reputation is already going to be ruined, right? Like I think people are always going to hold this against him, whether it's true or not. So I think for them just do not address it and not to say, well, this is reason why. And he's on the restricted list while we do an investigation. I think that's what they're trying to do is trying to save his face just in case he hasn't done this. Um, and then, of course, if he did, then they'll easily be able to say, well, you know, we just held him out because we needed to investigate. So I think it's more to try to save him face, but I think it's not going to work no matter what happens. 
And you just got to hope that is not true because that is disgusting. And uh, if it is true, I hope he goes away forever. There, I was telling a friend about this over the weekend. I spent a little bit of time in the Dominican Republic. And it is not unusual to see a younger, late to mid-teenaged girl in a relationship with an older male in that culture. And, and I'm not saying it's right, and I'm not saying what he's doing is right. I'm just saying it jumped out at me because he is from the Dominican Republic that it may in some respects be normalized to see a, I'm not saying 14-year-old, but I'm saying like a 15, 16, 17-year-old in a relationship with like a 22, 23-year-old person. In fact, I did a story on a kid named Carlos Rodriguez who was 22 years old who uh, was in the United States masquerading as a high school junior at a high school in Central California, and he had faked his birth certificate, and he happened to be dating a 15-year-old girl in high school. They were in a relationship. And I remember going to the parents of the 15-year-old and saying, you know, like, aren't you outraged? Aren't you, like, are you going to pursue statutory rape? Or, you know, what do you... And they were like, no, no, it's in his culture. It's, you know, and and that was sort of rationalized. And I also know that, um, you know, it's horrifying to think about a 14-year-old in a relationship with a 22-year-old. That's not a relationship. You know, that's a, a grown person taking advantage of a 14-year-old. But I I wonder at what point, don't, don't be surprised if at some point if this does turn out to be true, that the cultural aspect of that country comes up. And we're talking about a country that is extremely poor and a country that ha- it is not unusual to have kids that are 8, 9, 10, 11 years old in the same grade as kids who are 13, 14, 15 years old. And it's just weird in that they can all be in the fifth grade together and they're all different ages. It's just not the same system that we have. I also think it's not, um, it's not okay that the Rays – are, aren't taking a firmer stand on this. They're, they're, they punted the whole thing to Major League Baseball. They're just ba- they went along with the whole let's give away his baseball cap to kids 12 and under day, which is like you can't make that up. It's so ridiculous. They went along with that and then simultaneously then just said, oh, we're giving him the day off. It was such a cowardly move by the Rays. What they should have said is they should have come out and said, hey, this is horrifying to us to even think about this as a possibility. Major League Baseball is investigating it, and we thought it best for him not to be in uniform until we can get to the bottom of it. And uh, we're, we're hopeful that this has a happy resolution. Um, and, but the, I think the reality is that you know the Rays are probably going, holy hell, what is going on? And we can't cancel the giveaway, day because we have a sponsor involved. But it's just like when I started to read about it, I was like, wait, wait, is this right? Is this accurate? Kids 12 and under are getting a cap? that have, you know, some connection to him. It's his giveaway, and uh, you just can't uh, you can't wrap your head around it. And so I think there's a lot of tentacles to this thing, and it's uh, a pretty simple one for me if it, comes, if it turns out to be true. Uh, Major League Baseball, uh, you know, may not have the ultimate say here as uh, the authorities in the Dominican Republic or in the United States may ultimately decide what happens to, uh, to that individual. So, um, you know, it's really... Really, really scary stuff, and I think disturbing on face value. And then the other story that comes out that is equally as nutty when you think about it, The Blind Side, the movie The Blind Side that we all love, the Michael Lewis book and all of that, and oh, what a great story, and this is terrific, and 
you know, you talk about Michael Orr and what a great story that is. Well, it turns out that the supposed adoption of retired NFL player Michael Orr never happened. You see this story? 14-page petition filed in Shelby County, Tennessee today, alleging that the family, that rich, loving family, who took him into their home as a high school student, never adopted him and, in fact, took advantage of him. They got all the money from the movie that was made. He got none of it. And he's looking back going, hey, they took advantage of me. Stephen, you can't make this up. You really can't. And, you know, he he's talked about it like the, the movie portrays him in a really different light than what actually happened, according to him. And it's sad because, you know, he doesn't get any money off of that. And I know that it, you know, he has said before, like, he doesn't like the movie because it just portrays him wrong. And, right. um, you know, in the movie, you know, he portrays him as being this loner and not very smart when in actuality he was smart. He was an All-American by the time he went to the to the family. Like, it wasn't like he just was some unknown guy. He was an All-American. And so it really seems like they wanted him just to go to their school and they uh, picked him up that way. Yeah, and, you know, look, it. There's a lot of convenient, stereotypical stuff in that movie that jumps out. At, it jumped out at all of us. Like, oh, what a tidy, convenient, stereotypical story. You know, affluent white family takes in the uh, the poor kid who's disadvantaged, and he's a giant, and he's bound for an NFL career. And what a lovely story this is. Well, it turns out that they may have been committing the ultimate crime against him. Leave it here. It won't be long until we're talking about football and actual games, and watching games. But college football has dominated the news cycle this summer. Throughout the winter, of course. Chris Vanini, senior writer of The Athletic, has been all over a lot of this, and he wrote a fantastic column about Stanford, Cal, and the ACC. Conference realignment. What have we learned about it? Vanini's here to talk about it, among other things joining us what has your life been like as it pertains to the job in college football how different has this year felt for you well it hasn't felt any different than the last three years and and that that is the second year in a row i'm on vacation during conference realignment and you got to get back to work so you know (laughs) this this is it's become a year-round sport a long time ago but now every july and august is the next tectonic shift and I didn't even realize till today that we actually have football games next week, week zero, and I'm I actually got me really excited. But there is obviously still realignment that still needs to be shaken out. All right, give, give me an idea because it was we had a family trip in early July. We went to New York. Uh, we have three daughters, and we're at the Statue of Liberty. And you know what, Chris? I'm like on the platform of the Statue of Liberty, updating a column that I've written. And everybody else is enjoying vacation. And what do you do when you're on vacation and hell breaks loose? Well, last year I remember sitting on the beach uh, uh, in Canada. My, I'm from Detroit. My parents have a place in Canada on a lake. And I remember thinking, oh, we're, we're finally having a normal preseason. You know, after the Texas, Oklahoma, and all the fallout, we're finally going to have a normal stuff. And then. The next day when I'm on my plane is when the USC-UCLA news happens. This year, you kind of I, I went back up to Detroit, knew it was going to happen, and the big stuff got settled before I went to SummerSlam in Detroit with my family, so I was able to not work while I was there at the show, but then we went up to Canada the next, uh, the next day and was back to realignment once again. 
You go into you cross the border and stuff happens. Uh, Chris Vanini of the Athletic is with us. Stay uh, stay stateside for us for a minute here, so we can sort some of this out. But the ACC Stanford Cal, you wrote about it today, and you know you're you're sort of saying that look, look at the history of all this. What do you see when you see that ACC decision as it pertains to Stanford and Cal? I just think about the last couple of years we've had, where 2016 the Big Twelve could have expanded, brought bunch of schools in to take a look at they ultimately decide not to expand five years later texas oklahoma leave and the conference nearly collapses pac-12 has a chance to expand could have added some of those big 12 schools usc kind of leads the charge against it they don't expand the next year usc and ucla leave and now we're at a point where the pac-12 has collapsed and so it, it, it's just there's a lot of history, I think, to learn from that. And now the ACC has the grant of rights through 2036. It's, it, there is more security in that. But it's very clear Florida State has been very open with how much it wants to leave the ACC. And if Florida State eventually leaves and maybe a couple other schools follow, you want to have enough numbers in place to survive and not have to add somebody from the American or something like that. To add the quality of schools like Stanford and Cal available essentially as like unrestricted free agents, I think the ACC has to do whatever it can to get enough presidents to yes, to add them. When I saw that it was one vote short, I went, well, that'll happen by Monday. Uh, Where does it stand now in your mind? Nothing seems to really have changed. There there is at least four no's. Some others are maybe more on the fence. But interestingly, the no's that we know of are Florida State, Clemson, North Carolina, not surprising. And then NC State is the other one. And that's an interesting situation because they're not an AAU school. They're not one of the biggest brands like a Florida State. If they were to jump from the ACC, so to speak, I don't know if they'd have a landing spot. But North Carolina and NC State operate under the same board of governors. It's part of the UNC system, kind of like the Arizona situation. I don't know if you'll be able to split them or not. If you can, NC State might be the swing vote, so to speak, to get to 12 out of 15 presidents saying yes. Um, nothing seems to have changed since the last couple of days, but, uh, you know, these things, this is something that doesn't need to be determined immediately. You can take your time on it. You can work people and, and try to figure it out from there. We, uh, you know, we're looking at a landscape that just saw the collapse of the Pac-12, and you got the Nebraska AD coming out over the weekend saying, look, this isn't the end of it. It's going to continue. Um, obviously, Oregon and Washington make a decision that is like a 20-year view view decision. They weren't doing this for a short-term move. They're taking you know, a limited distribution to get security. Um, what do you expect it to look like 10, 15, 20 years from now, Chris? I mean, are we looking at a landscape that has two conferences and 40 teams or – how many conferences, how many teams in your mind? I, I think we do move to some sort of future that is two major conferences at the top of the sport. You know, I, I hate all this realignment stuff, you know, up front. Like I just I hate all this that is happening. But it, it, I understand why schools are making moves for money right now. I understand why Florida State is screaming that it has to find a place where it can make more money because it's very possible – we're coming up on a future where schools have to pay players. And so you need money to do that. And the reason we're getting to a place where you may have to pay players is because the schools hoarded all the money and didn't give it to the players. So like, it's always, there's always been another reason you got to have more money. And so 
I think we get there. I, I think it's certainly possible that you see consolidation within those conferences. At what point does Ohio State say, you know, I don't think we should be making the same amount of money as Indiana? Or if you're in the SEC, the same thing about the Mississippi schools or South Carolina. Like, if if the Pac-12 can essentially die over TV revenue and decisions made by certain people, as that linear TV continues to collapse, there's less and less money available that it's just it's being funneled toward the top. And at some point, the top teams are not going to want to be splitting money with the bottom teams. And I worry that teams are going to either be kicked out of a conference or left behind for some new conference if football decides to do its own thing. Chris Benini, the athletic senior writer, covers college football, among other things. Uh, as, as it pertains to Oregon State and Washington State, there's a lot of rubbernecking going on with the ACC-Stanford-Cal decision. I think they're hoping that their first bet would be to try to put the Pac-4 back together again somehow, like Humpty Dumpty. But I'm kind of also wondering, how much can you trust Stanford? I mean, if they are one vote away, where are they in a year? Uh, and the next time the Big Ten wants to expand, does that mean you're losing them as well? What advice would you give Oregon State and Washington State today? Yeah, I'm not high on the possibility of the Pac-4 rebuilding for the obvious reasons. One, you probably can't get any Mountain West schools this year. Even American schools, it would be quite costly to get out of. You'd be jumping into a league that doesn't have a TV deal. You'd have to figure that out. You're jumping into a, a league that's probably going to lose its college football playoff money. It's, it's A5 status. Owns the Comcast money. Has some lawsuits going on. Like, It's not that big of a revenue jump to make to make a move like that. And you know Stanford and Cal is still going to try to get into the Big Ten at some point. You know, I, I can't imagine they would sign a grant of rights for that new conference. Group of five conferences don't have grant of rights for that reason, because schools don't want to agree to it because they want to jump to somewhere else. So if you form a new Pac-4, Stanford and Cal may still leave in a few years. And then, then what are you left with? It's, it's kind of a weird situation. I know the American is making a big push to try to get all four of them. They believe they're their their TV deal with ESPN is is a benefit. They tried to, you know, they th- they almost made a Western wing a few years ago with the Mountain West schools. They'd love to do that again. They've, they've got better academic schools than the Mountain West. Ultimately, for Oregon State and Washington State, it feels like the best fit is probably the Mountain West, uh, even if that's disappointing. But it's 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 like-minded schools. It's been a very good conference. You can create a lot of rivalries in there. Um, I know the schools have said, hey, we want to compete at the Power 5 level, and you're, just, you're not going to make up the revenue. I just I don't think there's any way they can. Um, and, and so it's just kind of dealing with that. Do you think it becomes a challenge in the Mountain West for them to consistently compete, or do they go, like, you know, I saw the comment from Kirk Schultz, the president at Washington State. He says, you know, we want, we'll continue to invest like a Power 5 school. You know, he's sort of hinting at, hey, if we go to the Mountain West, we're still going to spend. I just don't know if you're going to be able to recruit, it, you know, like a – power five school while you're in the mountain west you won't be and you know maybe you win a couple of years can you get access to the playoff and if you get to the playoff do you run into ohio state once there and you know they walk in with 68 million dollars in media money and you have 6.8 million you know it 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 becomes david and goliath in that position i i just i don't know where it's headed and i can see the tears you can we can all see the tears that are forming already yeah, and, and, and not only that, but like especially if you're a Washington State, you know, that's being Power 5, being Pac-12 is one of the things they have over Boise State. You know, they're not that far apart. If you're in the same conference suddenly, 
that's also a boost to Boise State's fortunes. There's really no, there's no easy fix. There's no obvious fix. There's almost no chance they remain a so-called Power Five team and, and make up that revenue. There's just, there's just no way to really do that. And I know with the money that's been put into facilities and stuff like that, especially at Washington State, that's difficult. And that's just that's part of the sadness of all of this, what it does to schools like that, what it does to their fans and, and people like that who get left behind. And I worry over the next 10, 20 years, you're going to have more schools that end up in that exact same situation. What What's it going to take? I, I thought Chip Kelly's comment about, hey, why not separate football? What's it going to take, Chris, to, to have that be a thing? It's going to take – Contracts that line up and people who are willing to do that kind of stuff. The reason you can't just pool everybody together or move them around is because they all have different contracts and TV deals that end at different times, and, and nobody wants to give up an advantage that they may have. So that's why college football has never been a cleanly organized sport. Shoot, it took a century before we could declare a true national champion in this sport. You know, it's, just, it's, the, it's the way it's always been organized is – regional and in, 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 in different kind of confederates all over the place. And now it's trying to be a national sport, but you have these contracts that are set to go way into the future and they're very, very difficult to get out of. So there's no clean way to break. You know, there, there's, there's no clean way unless it, it also, you know, the conferences don't want to lose the football teams, you know, like they'll take all the sports. It's, it's just, it's a very, it's a mess of things that's going to take, a lot of time to sort out and I don't think you'll have just one day where a bunch of teams do this and other teams do that and we have a clean break it's just it's going to continue to be messy especially if you throw things in like player compensation that are probably coming down the road it's only going to happen even more so that may be the thing that ultimately kicks it off hey we're paying our players it's not amateurism we have to leave the NCAA like that's it's, it's possible we get there but everybody's reacting to things in real time, and I don't know if any of the people currently in charge are going to be the ones who make those decisions. I, I'm looking at the group of five schools now, and you know, I I covered Pat Hill back in the day when he was at Fresno State, and he was playing anybody, anytime, anywhere, and he kept saying, "Just throw us a bone, just throw us a bone." Well, the expanded playoff will uh, potentially give you know a conference champion in the Mountain West a, a shot to matter. Do you think those teams really will matter, or will it just be? Hey, they're in. They're cannon fodder in the opening round. Uh, how compelling do you expect the expanded playoff to look early on? It'll be extremely compelling just because it's fresh and it's new and, and, and whatever that is. I think the fact that it's a 12 team instead of a 16 team helps the group of five in the sense that whoever that G5 team is won't be playing the number one team in the country. Mm. You know, they'll be playing, uh, depending on how they do the auto bids, if they keep them conference champs or not. It could be a, it could be an SEC team or it could be a conference champion from from somebody else. I think it's certainly possible you'll have a year where a group of five team can beat a top five team or a top seven team or something like that that's in the playoff. I mean, we we've seen it several times just in the last handful of years when UCF beat Auburn, Tulane beat uh, USC, Memphis went toe to toe with Penn State. If you get the right matchup, I certainly think it, they can get an upset here or there, but it's going to make the group of five feel more important than ever before. Now they're finally in the biggest stage outside of that. Obviously that one year Cincinnati made it. And I just, as this realignment stuff happens, I keep thinking back to that meeting here in Dallas, 2021, 
when the 12-team playoff was kind of approved to take a feasibility study to look into it. And they celebrated. All the commissioners talked about how this was – they were all doing the best for the sport. It was a shared sacrifice. You know, Notre Dame gave up its ability to get a buy. Everybody was in it together. Two years later, they've all ripped each other to shreds, and realignment <laughs> has killed the conference. And we haven't even gotten to that 12-team playoff. And I really thought the 12-team playoff was going to – slow things down because everybody had a path now, you know, but these schools have decided that I'm willing to, if I'm Oregon or Washington, I'm willing to give up an easy path to the playoffs to, to get extra money, you know, eight years from now in the big 10. And I just, I think that sends such a bad message to fans. You look at the history of the last 10, 15 years of realignment, how many of these schools that jump conferences are really happier? Are you going to be happy uh, you know, going eight and four, nine and three, and trying to back into the playoff in a loaded Big Ten, as opposed to going eleven and one and winning the Pac-12. I don't think fans are going to like that all that much. But everybody feels like you have to take the money, you have to take the security because of what, what may be coming down the line. And I think that's going to just turn a lot of fans off. You know, when they realize their team isn't winning as much as it used to. I, I have a very you know West Coast centric view of all of the all of what's going on. It's where I grew up. It's where I work and live and you know, it's kind of how we view things. And uh, it's interesting to me to talk with people who are in other parts of the country about college football because, you know, I'm really interested to see, you know, how many of these Pac-12 teams can stay uh, near the top of the top 25. Will they uh, will they uh, cannibalize each other in week seven and beyond in the season? And, you know, can Utah play without Cam Rising? What will DJ Uyunglele look like at Oregon State? And Bo Nix with a new coordinator. But where's your head as it heads to week zero and you, and you think about, the actual games. I literally just recorded our Pac-12 podcast, Pac-12 preview podcast with Ari Wasserman, and I said it months ago, but I think the Pac-12 is going to be the most fun conference of college football, like, by a lot. Like, the quarterback play, everything about this league is going to be so exciting. And the league finally scheduled smart, where almost all of the big games are happening in the second half of the season. So it's a year when you're going to have teams inflate their records before they start losing a game here or there. So they won't tumble down so far. If you're in the top 10 and you lose to the team that's number 15, you're not going to fall out of the top 25 and stuff like that. So I think that was a, a, the Pac-12 scheduled itself very well. It's very easy to see Oregon State starting off the year 9-1 and one with that schedule and going into the Oregon and Washington games to close the year. So I think the Pac-12 is going to be a lot of fun. The last year we kind of get it, and I hope everybody – enjoys it for what it is who's your pac-12 championship game washington versus oregon state Ooh, kind of a it, it's it's tough like one of the questions we had on our podcast was like is it going to be a combination of usc washington oregon like maybe but like the field is so deep with utah and oregon state and ucla and it's, it's like it could be any collection. I'm really high on Washington. I'm really high on Kalen DeBoer as a coach and everything that they're bringing back. And like I said, I think Oregon State's schedule is favorable. You can see them starting off 9-1. and one. If you split the last two games to be 10-2, and two, that probably gets you in the championship game. So uh, I'm going Washington-Oregon State. Washington's November is brutal. It's the only thing that gives me pause as yeah. I look and I go, do they survive that month without, you know, losing two games down the stretch? And, 
and having to go to Oregon State after coming off, I think it's Utah-USC or Oregon-Utah-USC, some brutal stretch where they play, you know, three of those in four weeks. It's uh, I think I, I think I called it bloody November for Washington, but I, I don't think it, I don't think there's a wrong answer because you look at or you can make a case for Oregon State with a straight face, uh, Oregon of course, USC of course, Washington of course, and then the minute I do that, I go oh, if I don't pick Utah, Kyle Whittingham is going to punch everybody in the nose and end up in there anyway. Like it's it's just it, and then don't forget about but, Chip Kelly. They all have difficult schedules because they all play each other, you know. <laughs> So it's it's like they they all they all have to beat each other up at some point. So someone else has a difficult schedule. You may have a difficult schedule, but so do all the other teams you're competing with. You know, it's not like anybody has a, a, an easy walk. Chris Benini, the Athletic. Follow him on Twitter. Read him at the Athletic. Chris, thank you for giving us your time. I appreciate you, man. Yep, thanks for having me. All right, good stuff from him. Follow him on all the realignment talk. Uh, he had a great piece today about why the ACC should grab Stanford and Cal. Uh, it's the truth. I mean, if you look at the Pac-12, the Pac-12's um, the Pac-12's demise could, you know, probably be explained by bad leadership first and foremost. Should be explained that way. Then you talk about strategic mistakes, not expanding when you had the chance to expand. The fact that they didn't have uh, the ability to replace a divot or two as they started to lose teams has left them only with four teams. Think about the possibilities had they moved to expand sooner. I. I don't agree with Chris on his pick, though, Stephen, for the Pac-12 championship game. I, I don't see Washington getting there. Not. I'm looking at their schedule right now, and I, I get it. Everybody's schedule's brutal. It's true, but Washington plays at USC on November 4th. They host Utah on November 11th. They go to Oregon State on November 18th, and then they finish with the Apple Cup. There could be two or three losses in there for Washington. That is not an easy path, and I think he's right about Oregon State having the easiest schedule, I think, of the five contenders, the five ranked teams. But I think Oregon's right behind them, and I think when you look at um, you know Oregon and the ability for Oregon to, you know, they play at Washington. It's true they have that game in Week Seven at Washington, but you know, and they have USC at home and they play Oregon State, but you know, and they go to Utah. I guess. <laughs> I guess yeah. <laughs> everybody's got it tough. But Oregon State doesn't have to do that. Oregon State doesn't have USC, and Oregon State gets Utah and Washington at home. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think Oregon State is probably the least talented out of all those five schools, but they may, you know, they have one of the best coaches, and they have by far the easiest schedule. Like, you've talked about that. Like, the schedule that Oregon State plays, it is, I mean, it's it's tough because the Pac-12 is very good this season, but it's doable, and there is a legitimate chance for Oregon State to get there. I, you know, I agree with Chris. I don't think Washington will be in the Pac-12 title game. I think that the offense is just so good, um, and they, I think they're just scratching the surface with year one with Michael Penix. But I mean, you can't really go wrong with those five teams. Like it, it's really going to come down to maybe the last two weekends of the season when they're all playing one another, and, and it, it's just it's going to be a fun Pac-12 season because it's like you said, like Chris said, they all play one another. So we're really going to figure out who the top two teams are uh, going into Vegas. And here's the other thing. All right, giving a prediction now before anybody's played a game, I I will I will give you the right to change your mind in like week five after we've seen some football. Like I always laugh at people who say, "Well, you have to stick with your pick that you made before the year." Well, you know your mind can change after you see Washington play a little bit, and you see Oregon and Bo Nix play a little bit, and you see DJ Unga Unga Lele at, at quarterback a little bit. You can change your mind. Um, and, and here's 
where I what I will say for my prediction right now. I think USC gets to the title game. I think they've got the best player, and I think that defensively they'll be better than they were a year ago. So I'm going to put them in there. I think Utah's schedule is brutal, and I think Washington's schedule is brutal down the stretch. I don't like it. I wouldn't feel great picking those teams. So I'm going to say USC and the winner of the Civil War are in the Pac-12 championship game. And so uh, is that am I hedging too much by just saying the winner of the Civil War? I think it's one of the Oregon teams, Oregon or Oregon State, against USC in Vegas for the final Pac-12 championship. Could be a rematch of USC in Oregon from earlier in the season. Or it could be Oregon State's last opportunity to play USC, but I think they're—I think it's USC and one of the Oregon schools at the end of the rainbow. No, I don't think you're hedging. I think that's a—you know—it's a good call. Like it, it really might come down to that last weekend between Oregon State and Oregon because it does—you know—it also depends on what happens up in Seattle when Washington plays Oregon. If Oregon wins that game, I mean, it's really going to come down to what yeah. Oregon State does, and I think—I think those those may be the two most important games in the Pac-12 to figure out who the Pac-12 champion is going to be is Oregon at Washington and then Oregon, Oregon State in the final game of the season. Like, those three teams all playing each other, like, I think those are the teams that really have a chance to get up there and be that second team. Because I think we all agree that USC has the most talent and, you know, the best player. So it's it's tough to say, like, you know, I don't think that they're going to be there, but they still might be not be. I mean, this conference is good. Conference is so good that there are five ranked teams and the sixth team, UCLA, uh, skips some teams in the in the rotation. They don't have to play uh, Oregon. I don't think they play Washington either. And so they skip those two schools. And I think UCLA might have a path that they could carve for themselves. They could be a really disruptive team. That, that, uh, that's the crazy the part with UCLA, John, is their win total is eight and a half. Like they're projected to maybe be a nine win team. and They're not even ranked in the top 25. Like we don't even really consider them a, a legitimate contender for the Pac-12 title. That's how good this conference is. It's really interesting to me to kind of look at the Pac-12 because we think football matters, right? We just saw that 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 basically the media companies, the TV companies said, "Hey, we don't think the Pac-12 has got enough value to bid more than 30 million dollars for their TV rights." And as a result, the Pac-12, which should have took the 30 million dollar deal in the fall of 22, ends up imploding because they don't have a TV deal and everybody jumps. And yet the rankings come out today, and five teams are ranked in the top 18, and there's going to be a ton of viewership. And Chris Vanini, who covers college football nationally, comes on this show and says, hey, the Pac-12 is going to be the most interesting, most fun conference in the country this season. Um, The TV companies don't believe that the Pac-12 teams aren't interesting. They want to put them on TV. It's compelling stuff. They just didn't have any use for the conference itself. The teams, this is going to be a great season. There are great football programs in the conference. It's it's kind of a shame that this has unfolded the way it has because, you know, we cried foul for years. Hey, there's no basketball tournament teams. Hey, they're, they're terrible in the postseason in football. They can't win in the bowl season. And now we're looking at, here come the rankings, top 18. There's Oregon. There's Oregon State. There's USC. There's Utah. There's Washington. It's going to be a really good conference. Maybe they got a playoff team among them. Who knows? The narrative has shifted, and uh, and yet the Pac-12 is going to have its last season as we know it. Punch and audio is coming up. Leave it here. We're going to play some punch and audio on this uh, beautiful summer day. Too warm for you, Stephen? Too warm? Yeah, very warm. Uh, the AC in the building is not quite working. Um, so, you know, the doors are open. The, we got a couple fans, luckily. So, uh, 
If it's a little loud when I have the door right now, I'm going to go shut it real quick while I'm I don't talking. hear anything. Okay, good. I, I don't uh, hear anything. I, I might die if I close the door. I mean, I was sweating real hard in here. I don't. Uh, I'm warm in my studio, but I like it a little warm and toasty. I don't mind it being like, you know, um, I don't mind it being 78 degrees, 70, 80 degrees. What about like 88 degrees? It feels like it's about 108 mm. in here. Then it starts to really feel. It's just, there's a difference between like when I I don't mind it being warm because I feel like I'm working if it's warm, you know I'm not like tarring a roof. Right. But it feels like I'm working out if it's like 88, you know, 90 degrees in there. It feels like I should have like a towel on and be talking to somebody about you know what's wrong with the Yankees lineup and I'm sitting in the sauna, you know, like it, I don't. Is that what people talk about in the sauna? Probably. Like in, yeah. my, in my head, that's what I thought. <laughs> But I, so I don't mind it a little warm, and I grew up. Um, I grew up with parents that did not believe in air conditioning. <laughs> My parents, we didn't have air conditioning, and it was uh, it was pretty warm where we lived. Like in the summer times, it would be nineties all throughout the summer, and then we'd get a couple weeks where it was up above a hundred and whatever, and we just kind of dealt with it. You know, I don't know any different. And in the car, my my parents never had air conditioning in their car. If they did, they never turned it on. I didn't know it existed until I was like 30 years old. I had a car of my own, and I was like, hey, they got air conditioning. And now what do we do? I drive around when it's like 80 degrees with the air conditioning on. And back in the day, it would be like 105. And uh, we'd be, you know, just bebopping down the freeway with the windows rolled down and just living living good life. Um, James Harden, he's going to be part of Punch It Audio. Damian Lillard, should he take notes from Harden? Plus uh, some thoughts on Oregon, USC, Oregon State, and the rest of the Pac-12. All of that, part of Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, James Harden is uh, taking a firm stance. Uh, James Harden was... uh, was uh, speaking, was it to a group of kids in China? Yeah, it was a, uh, it was like a camp <laughs> a that he had camp. in China, yeah, for, for Adidas. He had a camp in right. Adidas in China, and he was speaking to a bunch of kids. Speaking to a bunch of kids. It's a little difficult to hear this, but he's basically going to call Daryl Morey a liar. This is one way to get out of your contract or try to force a trade. He's talking about his GM here. Punch it. Oh, Daryl Morey is a liar. And I will never get a part of the organization that he's a part of. Let me say that again. Daryl Morey is a liar, and I will never be a part of the organization that he's a part of. Basically, calling that's Charlie Brown's teacher calling Daryl Morey a liar. He believed it so much, John, he had to repeat it. He said the exact same thing twice. I just love, too, that he's speaking to a group of like 10 year old kids. Who have no idea what he's like? They don't. They're not tuned into what he's talking about. Uh, Daryl Morey, meanwhile, telling uh, reporters that he's unmoved by the comments, holding firm in his stance that he will not trade Harden unless it makes the Sixers a better team. Uh, it's interesting to watch this go down. Adrian Wojnarowski's got a take on it. Uh, is this how you force a trade in today's NBA? Punch it. This goes back to late June. James Harden uh, opting into the last year of his contract, $35.5 million, 
instead of going into free agency negotiating a long-term extension with uh, the Sixers. And essentially, I think James Harden and his agent decided, believed at that time, they were not going to get the kind of extension that they wanted, which was a longer term, right. closer to max money. And so they opted into the deal, uh, which then uh, allowed him to be traded and told, told the Sixers, trade us, uh, trade him to the Clippers. Mm. Sixers really have not had any real interest in trading James Harden. They can't get value for him back. Uh, that continues to allow them allow them to be a contender. And essentially, uh, they pulled them off the market on Saturday. They called the Clippers, told them, uh, we're not going to talk about a trade anymore. The two sides never got anywhere anyway. And then James Harden uh, comes out earlier today. This has been escalating behind the scenes all year. Now it is playing out in public. James Harden's goal is is to make the Sixers so uncomfortable mm. that they just decide that they cannot bring him back to training camp and they do a trade that they don't really want to do. Interesting to watch this play out as a strategy. As James Harden's done this to numerous teams now, and meanwhile you got Damian Lillard and his agent, Aaron Goodwin, playing a nicer version of the, of the same game. I mean, they want to force a trade to Miami, uh, but Lillard's not coming out saying, I won't play, Joe Cronin's a liar, I'll never be part of an organization. He's not trying to make the Blazers that uncomfortable. Still, you got Pablo Torre saying that Damian Lillard might be uh, taking notes here. Punch it. Yeah, I mean, look, first off, Damian Lillard should be taking notes. This is how you do this, okay? <laughs> like, you make a giant mess. You involve every bit of leverage you did not have by generating controversy, generating toxicity. And if you're Adam Silver, this is obviously, to your point, Mike, a shot across his bow, too. Like, what do you do? What do you do when one of your most famous players is out here saying, I'm not showing up because my GM is a liar, because he promised me something that he did not deliver, when in fact, it seems like what he did not deliver was a trade that was satisfactory to the team that was going to trade him away. Why are people making this out to be about pizza, Stephen? <laughs> Have you seen this? No. What? Pizza? So People are saying that uh, James Harden uh, came out and said Daryl Morey promised pizza every Friday and didn't deliver pizza on Friday. I mean, that can't, that can't be real. I think it's real. I think it's real. Do we check the source on that one? Google it right now. Google it right now. Pizza and James Harden. What was, the Twitter, what was the Twitter account you found that I one on? I don't know. Be careful, I saw, John. There's a lot of trolls out there. I saw it in numerous places, and I thought, this can't be about pizza. It's got to be about, about a trade. <laughs> I think that that was part of the deal, that Maury told him he was getting pizza, and he didn't get pizza. But I think he's really talking about the trade. But is pizza part of this? Is it part of the lie? You tell me. Come on, did you find it? Uh, I Have mean, you found I, it yet? I did. I don't. I, I, the PFT commentator Barstool Sports. He tweeted us. He's he can be a troll sometimes. I don't know. I, I got I got to dig in a little more, John. Before you I come dig up with in. A, before I find. He out. lied about the front. <laughs> pizza was supposed to be Fridays. I do and... love a pizza Friday. That is, you know what. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, let's pivot to the NFL where Michael Orr is talking about what the movie The Blind Side and the book The Blind Side by Michael Lewis got wrong. Big story today. Punch it. I think it took away the hard work and the dedication that I created uh, from a child and going to school in the third grade, getting myself up. First one in the locker room, last one out. Uh, and I think the biggest for me is, you know, being portrayed, uh, not being able to read or write. 
uh, second grade, I was doing plays and for in front of the school. And I, I think that's one of the when you go into a locker room and your teammates don't think that you can learn a playbook, you know, that weighs heavy uh, on someone, you, you know, and you have to understand. I understand that the movie has given me a position. I'm honored to have the position it's given me. But, you know, you have to understand before I moved in with the family, I was an All-American. Before he moved in with the family, the Chewy family uh, now under fire as Orr is claiming that he was taken advantage of and signed over a conservatorship to that family that gave them control of his financial decisions when he was 18 years old. He said it was misportrayed, misconstrued. He's now, with the help of an attorney, secured the documents. He's got a story to tell, but it feels like, uh, you know, the blind side of the movie it was conveniently stereotypical. And I mean that as a storyteller. Sometimes you'll encounter a story or you'll see a story and you just go, eh, it's a little too convenient. It's a little too pretty. You know, life isn't that way. Life is gnarled. It's got knots in it. It's not all black and white. And, you know, you can't tie it up with a bow. In the movie The Blind Side now does appear as though it was uh, it was prettied up for Hollywood. Uh, Michael Orr and that story, a lot more uh, will unfold in the coming days. Let's pivot to college football where Josh Pate has USC losing twice this season. USC at 10-2? and two? Will they make the Pac-12 title game? Punch it. The most likely record for USC this year, I think, is 10-2. and two. They're over-unders 9.5, so the over would hit here. If someone listens to me say 10-2, and two, your natural reaction should be, wait a second, we went 11-1 and one last year. You're expecting us to regress? I'm actually not. I'm not expecting you to regress. I don't think USC will be a worse team this year. you got to understand what that turnover luck did for you last year. And what just having even numbers in the turnover battle and having the same team, or maybe even a little bit better team, does to a normal season. That, that, by the way, the back half of their schedule at Notre Dame, Utah, at Cal, Washington, at Oregon, UCLA. They play all the best teams on the back end. I just, it's tough for me to see that best case panning out. USC was plus 22 in the turnover margin last year. They got five at Oregon State to win that game by three points on the road. Led the nation in turnover margin. Josh Pate has him at 10-2. and two. Um, I, If they go 10-2, and two, uh, I would venture to say that's a bad season for them, that I do, I do have them as like a one-loss team again with Caleb Williams. Can they be any worse on the defensive side? Even though they were opportunistic, they weren't a great defense. They gave up yards. They gave up points. And, and you know, while the, uh, I thought the secondary did a nice job in a lot of games that they were leading in coming up with interceptions and timely, uh, timely moments, um, I, I kind of think 10-2 and two would be a disappointment for USC fans. Uh, let's talk about Oregon. Greg McElroy talks about them at number 15 in the AP poll. Punch it. Oregon, another team from the Pac-12, and at number 15, maybe slightly low, but understandable, a little bit of difference with the new offensive coordinator, a couple of pieces that are starting to emerge defensively, 15 probably about right. 15 about right. Uh, the Beavers not far behind them. Pac-12 having five teams among the top 18. Oregon State at 18, Oregon at 15, Utah at 14, Washington at 10, and uh, you have uh, at USC at 6 
in the AP poll, fresh out. That is Punch It Audio. We have so much more to talk about. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. James Harden calling Daryl Morey a liar for not giving him pizza. Come on. You know what? I think we should do a segment here about um, what to trust and what do you trust and what don't you trust when it comes to stuff that you see on social media, when it comes to stuff that you see reported, when it comes to, uh, you know, friends who tell you things. Do you have a threshold for, you know, when something is reported, when you see something? Because it's true. Like, if you're on any kind of social media, you're going to encounter about, 30% of what you see is nonsense. It might be higher on some other, on some platforms. About 30% of it is, is, you know, borderline fabricated or just created to get a rise out of you. Like literally saw a video last night with somebody uh, purporting that a UFO had landed in their backyard and they're showing like the saucers in the skies and, you know, here's where it landed. And, and I'm like, there's got to be somebody who believes that. I saw the James Harden pizza thing this morning. I went by it and went, eh, that looks a little fishy. But it, maybe they did promise him pizza and he didn't get it. Uh, do you have kind of a a rule of thumb, Stephen, as it pertains to what you read, what you see, and what you believe? Yeah, I mean, uh, like the pizza thing. I don't, I don't, I don't buy the pizza thing unless I see it. Like, I don't know. I don't know who I have to see it from, but I just, I don't buy it until I see it more from more respected people, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I think I go in with the thought process of almost it, it may be to a fault of thinking that things are not true until it's finally proven to be true. Like it's the opposite of the uh, judicial system. There, you know, proven uh, guilt or innocent until proven guilty. Mine's almost but, like it's guilty yeah. till proven innocent. I always wait for somebody that I trust, a credible reporter that I trust, to report something before I'll actually believe it. And I see a lot of things that are thrown out there. But um, he did promise some Pizza Fridays. Um, here it is. On The Athletic is reporting this. The little stuff matters when running a team. The seeds of mistrust between Harden and Maury had been planted with the smallest forgotten promises, according to Harden. Every Friday, there was going to be a pizza day. We had pizza Friday for the first month of the season, and that was it. It was supposed to be every week, all year long. You come in on Friday, you get a slice, not some Fridays, every Friday. Consistency builds championships. That was the deal we had, but it was a lie. Do you buy it? I mean, James Harden is not, you know, he doesn't seem like he's in the best shape, so he may like pizza a lot. Um, I don't I'm going to say no. I don't buy it that that was a reason why he wants out of Philadelphia. That, 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 I don't know. I don't believe that. I don't think that's it either. No. But Okay, so I look on social media. I'll see a lot of things that are reported, and then I go track down a source that I know to be reputable. I do, I do a little bit of legwork myself, and I think a lot of people are doing some of that legwork. I see things reported about the Pac-12, about Oregon, about Oregon State, and then I run them down. But even today there was a report that somebody put out about the the American uh, the conference, uh, you know the and Mike Oresco, the commissioner, is meeting this afternoon with all four Pac-12 schools and ESPN. I saw that put out. I happen to be on the phone with Mike Oresco of the American, the commissioner of the American, while I saw that tweeted, and I said, "Hey, uh, is there anything to this?" And 
it basically was like, no, <laughs> like, you know, like it's it's sometimes. Uh, but here's the other thing. Like, would he tell me if that were true? Like and so I think you have to have your BS meter up as a person who is out in the world these days. And I don't care if it comes to sports news or any other news. You kind of got to go, hey, is it seem too good to be true? If so, let me get to a second source. Also, I think video is held up these days as irrefutable evidence, but we're finding out more and more that video can be doctored, and we're not that far away from, like, you know, um, you know, somebody really fooling somebody nationally with an AI-doctored sort of video. Like, you know, that's, that's going to happen. But I, I just think, like, I'm always looking for a reputable source that I trust. I think it becomes more and more important to find sources that you can trust in today's world. Like, I know on the NBA front, that unless I see Adrian Wojnarowski report it, I don't think it's happened, you know? And somebody else may say it, but I'm always looking. I'll check. I'll go to Woj's Twitter feed just to make sure. And there are a few people like that in, in different corners of the sports world that I rely on, and I go, okay, until that person says it, you know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But also there's just a threshold, too, when you see stuff that your algorithm is just pushing at you on TikTok and Twitter and Facebook that, you know, it, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And speaking of, over the weekend, a catastrophic development in this whole Elon Musk versus Mark Zuckerberg fight. Apparently, the fight is off. Musk is dodging the Zuck. Doesn't want to fight him. Wanted to do a practice fight in his backyard before he would sign on for the real fight. I declare that Mark Zuckerberg's the winner by the fact that Elon Musk wanted a practice fight just to see, like, could, am I going to get embarrassed before he would get in and have an actual fight? Yeah, no. Um, Musk, he, he's ducking him here. He's ducking him because we've seen, well, at least I don't know. Everyone has. I know I have. I've uh, seen pictures of Zuckerberg. I've seen him, Zuckerberg, training with jiu-jitsu. Uh, my, my brother-in-law, he's a big martial arts guy. He's a big you know CrossFit guy. I showed in the video of Zuckerberg doing jiu-jitsu. He said he had good form. So uh, I'm going to take that as, as Zuckerberg could uh, take Elon Musk, and so Musk is ducking him. There's nothing that says I can't beat you like saying, hey, before we really fight, let's do a practice fight in your backyard. Like, I just want to make sure I'm not going to embarrass myself before I embarrass myself kind of move from Elon Musk. I'm very disappointed in this. Now who? Now I got to get Zuck a, uh, a fight. If Since Musk is ducking him, we got to find another fight for Zuckerberg. It's, it feels as though he wants, a he wants a fight. He's ready for one. So we'll see what happens there. All right, the 5 at 5 is coming up top of the hour. Big happy hour in front of us. You got the BFT statewide. I uh, appreciate that you're here for this radio show and make it part of your day. Here we go. The happy hour still ahead. Five at five. What's going to be in it? Find out next. Anna's been on hiatus. Steven's going to do the five at five. Anna's got both parents in town, which means she's running around like an Uber driver, running, uh, running, <laughs> running everybody everywhere, except no tips, no ratings. That's what you do when your parents are visiting. Got both parents in town. It's good for her. Gets to see her parents. I don't know. I don't know if you guys, if you do this, Stephen. I don't know how often you see your parents or your wife sees her parents, but you know, um, I think I realize it as a parent myself, who's got a daughter who's in college, is that you don't get to see your kids very often. And so every time I see my parents, I go, you know, how many more times do I get to see my parents? You know, and try to spend that time. So she's been running around. Soaking it up. She took her mom out to uh, to a winery over the weekend. Went out to the Stoller Winery. Shout out to the Stoller family. 
fantastic winery out there. It's also like 100 degrees out there, so I guess they got air conditioning. And she had a nice time with her mom, soaking it up. But I saw her today. She was driving away. She had her dad and her mom in the car. And I can tell you, I she's probably not had that experience to have her parents in one place with her very often in the last 10 or 15 years. So uh, pretty cool for her. I don't do you does that do you hit that realization like because like it's different for me to have one daughter who's away at college I realize now it probably makes me a better dad with the younger ones because I go oh gosh I know what that's like when they go away and you don't get to see them anymore as often or it's just a text or it's just you see them every once in a while yeah it's got to be different because you know, I, I I understand I understand, but I don't because you know my kids are still so young, so I see them every yeah. single day. But it is weird to think like you live with someone for so many years and you see them every single day, then all of a sudden, poof, like you don't see them every day. So yeah, I mean, take it for granted. I probably do just because I see my kids every day. But you you have the perspective of knowing that at some point it's going to go away. You won't see her every single day. So I think you have a unique perspective on that one. I did that with a nine year old today because I literally. Right before the show today, she was, uh, you know, standing around, and I, I, I got down next to her, got eye to eye with her. I think it's really important to get down and get to their level. And I, and I just talked to her for a minute, and I was looking her in the eyes, and I was talking to her, and I was having a very serious conversation, telling her how, how much fun I have in the summer. I get to see her more, and she's not in school, and all this great, like, deep, rich stuff. And I was, you know, I was being a good dad, right? I was feeling good about myself. And then... I finished talking to her, and I said, what do you think about that? And she says, you know, when I was looking at you, you look like you have four eyes. We were that close. <laughs> so that's what she got out of it. But uh, at least she'll remember that I attempted to have a eye-to-eye conversation with with her on this uh, beautiful Monday. All right, let's, uh, let's do the five at five. You're all ready for this? Yeah, let's do it. You got it ready? Okay, he's ready. I'm ready. I hope you're ready. The five. Steven's number one story. He's got a lot to choose from. What do you got, Steven? Yeah, so number one, I'm going to go with the AP poll on college football. Let's let's talk about a little bit on the field, John. AP poll comes out today. Georgia, the number one ranked team, of course, back-to-back champions. They're in at one. Michigan at number two. Ohio State, number three. Alabama, number four. Tell you what, New Big Ten, Oregon, and Washington may have a little trouble with the number two and three teams in the nation. Let's just say that. That conference is going to be stacked. But for the Pac-12, USC comes in at number six, Washington number 10, Utah 14, Oregon 15, Oregon State 18, UCLA nowhere to be found in the top 25. I thought they might sneak in there towards the end, but five Pac-12 schools in the top 18, John, uh, looks like a big year for the the Pac-12. Georgia got 60 of the 63 first place votes. I was surprised three votes went anywhere else. Given what they've done in the last couple years, don't you have to make them the Preseason unanimous number one. Michigan got a couple of the first place votes. Ohio State got a first place vote. None for Alabama. Nobody after that got a first place vote. But thought it was interesting that that it wasn't unanimous with Georgia, given what they've done in the last couple of years. Five Pac-12 teams in the top uh, what 18 teams in the poll, including Oregon State uh, checking in at number 18, and uh, not that far behind Oregon at number 15. It's going to be a lot of fun, fun season. The stage is set. I'm happy that we're going to be talking about football and seeing some football in the next week or so. If you had to uh, pick, because usually this happens, uh, you know, a team in the top 10 will fall out 
of the of the rankings altogether. I'm just going to put the Pac-12. You look at the five Pac-12 schools. Which one of the five is most likely to end the season not in the top 25? Utah. I think it's Utah. Is that just because Cam Rising unknown? I just think it's the big because I don't I don't see a case in which Washington doesn't end up in the top 25. I, I think Oregon, Oregon State both end up in the top 25. But if Cam Rising's knee's not right, Utah's not going to be the same. And so to me, that the the greatest risk is Utah and their schedule. They play Florida, they play Baylor, they have to play everybody in the Pac-12. They don't have any mulligans, and so without Cam Rising and no mulligans. Utah, to me, is a threat that it could be a team that maybe has a step back year. And I say that knowing that Kyle Whittingham looked me in the eyes and said, what do we have to do to get respect? I was, was going to say, hopefully Kyle Whittingham not listening right now uh, <laughs> or to maybe what you just said. He, he, he hopes he would. He would probably wallpaper his office with my words, you know, in the end. I, but let's look at the other teams that are, you know, in the top ten. Somebody that could have a real fallback. And we're going to find out pretty early because Florida State, number eight, plays LSU, number five. In the opening week, on week one, it's Florida State LSU. I, I, I wonder if we could see, you know, we always get a kind of a screwy kind of first week, second week of the season. That's a big game early on between number five and number eight on Saturday, September 4th. Yes, every year for the past 21 seasons except 2019, at least one preseason top 10 team finished unranked. Uh, last year it was Texas A&M, Baylor, and Oklahoma all started top 10 preseason then end, end up unranked. So. Historically, there is a team that starts in the top 10 then goes unranked by the end of the season. I'm going to say Florida State is my pick to be a top 10 team that finishes unranked. How about that? I like it. Step step back here for for the Seminoles. Number two story is Steven's season. Well, we talked about on the field, John. Of course, we're going to go off the field a little bit for college football. Brett McMurphy, the athletic, he had tweeted out, he has said that Florida State, they did not schedule a Board of Regents meeting for Tuesday as there was thought that they might do that. The deadline to notify the ACC um, leaving before the 2024 season was Tuesday. So it looks like Florida State's going to stay in the ACC for now as the FSU's board must approve any membership change. So Seminoles going to stay in the ACC for now as they've been trying to come out. And, you know, if you remember some of the, um, you know, the president said basically we need more money to stay in the ACC and compete. They've had some, you know, boosters come out and say they don't want to be in the ACC. We'll also have the ACC go out and try to get Stanford and Cal. And that vote hasn't been uh, fully you know, on board yet to get those two into the ACC as well. So Florida State looking like they'll be there for now, but still, you know, the college football realignment stuff not ending by any means. There you go. Uh, keep an eye on uh, Florida State. I- interesting that, you know, people expected that they might hold a board meeting. They've been really vocal and outspoken, but in the end, they, you know, they don't have anywhere to go. And I think that becomes the ultimate problem. You can be unhappy, but if you don't have leverage, you don't have somewhere to go. Um, and the ability to get there, I, you know, I don't know if it's anything more than an idle threat at this point. It's a poker game, and uh, you got to be willing to show your cards at some point. We're not going to see them on Tuesday. Uh, number three story, as you see it. Well, I'm not a huge soccer guy, John, but uh, Saudi club Al-Halal, they have signed Neymar to a two-year, $326 million contract. They failed to sign Messi and Mbappe earlier in the offseason. Mm-hmm. Looks like they're going to settle on Neymar, who was a big-time name. I remember him in the World Cup playing for Brazil. Uh, really good player, but two years, $326 million. With that kind of money they're throwing around, John, I mean, when do they get into the big four sports over here in America? It's just it's just a matter of time at this point, right? If they're not already. Right. That's the other thing is like, you know, look, um, 
that you can say that the investment funds aren't, but I think you also have to acknowledge that, that sometimes that money is uh, is wrapped up in other things. But uh, interesting to see that kind of money thrown around, driven by television, no doubt, and. Also, uh, the Lionel Messi experiment in Miami apparently paying off. Yeah, I mean, Messi, he's brought a little bit of life back to the MLS. He's been very popular. I saw he's hurt, though, uh, but still, you know, he, he's been big. And then, of course, he declined to play over there, uh, didn't take the money. Do you, do you blame these guys, Neymar, for taking that kind of money? I mean, I don't at all. No. Two years, 326 mil. It's life-changing. For, you know, it's life-changing. And, and some of the players, you watch, you know, the the upbringing of some of the players, and you go, how do they how do they pass on that? The ability to have generational wealth and wrapped up in their occupation. Just number, yeah, just fun money at this point. Yeah, number three, four, three, four. Sorry, I'm having fun. Number hey, four, number four. James Harden. We talked about this a little bit, uh, but called out Daryl Morey. He said, "Quote: Daryl Morey is a liar, and I'll never be part of an organization that he's a part of." Then he repeated that again, and quote, that was at an Adidas Media Day event in China with kids around. I believe someone probably asked him a question, but I don't know. But this comes two days after Philadelphia said that they have ended trade talks to trade James Harden. Harden opted into his contract earlier this year in June, then requested a trade to the Clippers. Hmm. Hasn't come true as well. Well, just said that the 76ers plan to bring Harden back to training camp and for the start of the season and that the Clippers in Philadelphia never really got any type of groundwork to a trade to acquire James Harden and send him to L.A. Sounds like the Clippers weren't even really that interested, and that was the only team that Harden requested to go to. Now, this is uh, my record books. This is the Stephen Vaughn record books, but James Harden has the most demanded trades in NBA history history of three. Uh, (laughs) I believe that would be the Rockets, the Nets, and now the 76ers, so why would you want to try to get him on your team? And then last season against the Clippers, or the Celtics, John, he had two closeout games for Philadelphia to advance. People don't remember this. Second round, semifinals. Philly was up 3-2 in the series over Boston. The next two games, game six, game seven, Harden, he averaged 11 points, shot 26% from the field, one of 11 from three-point range. I wonder about the Sixers organization in the first place trading for him. And it says something about him. Like, the organization itself might be messed up. But he's also messed up. And I and I am watching him come out today and try to embarrass Daryl Morey and try to create this situation that is untenable for the 76ers, force their hand, uh, force them into trading him and giving up on him by making it so uncomfortable for them. Who in the hell is going to sign on for that? Like, what NBA team is going to go, yeah, 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 you know what, give us that guy. Because we know when times get tough, he's going to be someone we can count on. I just kind of wonder if NBA teams will, you know, look at James Harden and and – you know, come out and go, you know what, that's that's uh, that's a guy we want on our side. And then meanwhile, you have the whole Damian Lillard situation being handled very differently by Lillard, and I think intentionally so. He doesn't want to be that guy. But you got media members like Pablo Torre coming out and saying, hey, Lillard should be paying attention here. Yeah, I mean, look, first off, Damian Lillard should be taking notes. This is how you do this, okay? <laughs> like, you make a giant mess. You involve every bit of leverage you did not have by generating controversy, generating toxicity. And if you're Adam Silver, this is obviously, to your point, Mike, a shot across his bow, too. Like, what do you do? What do you do when one of your most famous players is out here saying, I'm not showing up because my GM is a liar, because he promised me something that he did not deliver, when in fact, it seems like what he did not deliver was a trade that was satisfactory to the team that was going to trade him away. Does Lillard hold this 
in the back of his mind, Stephen, or is this never going to be Damian Lillard coming coming public, becoming the bad guy? I do. I I don't think he will become the bad guy, but I also think it's two different situations because James Harden he opted into his contract, John, because I don't think I think he looked around. He knew there wasn't a market for him. Like he could have been a free agent and he could have solved this problem by himself, going to any team he wanted to. But he opted into his contract because he wasn't going to get that long term deal in the off season. So he was hoping to get a trade. You know, opt in, get a big amount of money this year, get a trade, hopefully have a nice year, and then get another long-term contract. But I think teams are onto it a little bit. When you've done this three times, you know, fully once, shame on you or me, whatever it is, you know, shame on me, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you can't you can't be doing that anymore. James Harden is not that guy that you want to build around. And I think with Dame, at least he signed for those years. And if you trade for that guy, you know you have him for four years. He's never caused these kind of problems before. So I think they're two different situations, but I don't think that Dame will ever come out and just be the bad guy and say, you know, you know, I'm not going to be playing for a guy like Joe Cronin and that Blazers organization. He doesn't seem like that type of guy. I think Harden's a different breed in that, in that sense. Yeah, I think uh, he doesn't care maybe as much about the Sixers, not the team that drafted him, not emotionally attached to them. And he's uh, obviously with Daryl Morey had, you know, a two-time – Two, two divorces with Maury? But, that, I mean, but that's the thing. I mean, Daryl Maury has had James Harden's back numerous times and given him a lot of money. And Harden, you know, for whatever it is, he, you know, you can say that Daryl Maury lied to him and didn't give him a contract extension, but James Harden's not worth that contract extension. But, like, why? But didn't James Harden lie too? I mean, didn't he sign a contract and then he says he wants out? Isn't that a lie? Yeah, but because the thing was is Harden was going to opt out and then re-sign with Philadelphia, and then Daryl Morey said, no, we're not going to do that because you're not worth a max deal in four more years. I don't want you mm-hmm. at that. And so then he hopped, opted in and said, I want out. And so it's like it's one of the things like, yeah, Daryl Morey lied, but at the same time, do you want to just be a man of your word and be hindered by James Harden for another four years? No, like you got you to gotta look out for the organization. And I think that goes to you know, Daryl Morey analytics guy not an emotion guy like he looks at james harden says he's not worth this money not worth these four years i can't give it to you man like i will try to trade you but it's not gonna work either because nobody wants you and there's something i have to say too because along the same lines is like you know i do believe that a contract is a bond right like you know by definition when you sign a contract you're signing an agreement and it bothers me when players sign contracts and then two or three years into the deal, they go, hey, this is not a favorable deal for me. I took security up front and I've outperformed the contract. I want a new contract because I have the leverage on it. And it bothers me when players opt in and then say, trade me. You know, you're opting in. You're signing a contract. You're making an agreement with a team. So as much as James Harden could look over at Del Mori and go, hey, he wasn't a person of his word. He said he was going to give me an extension or he told my agent I would get the extension or as much as Damian Lillard's going hey you know through his agent trade me you made a promise by signing that contract it's a promissory note it's a contract it's an agreement honor your contract if if Harden really wanted to be not in Philadelphia he could have been a free agent he had a player option and he decided to go back to Philadelphia like I don't I don't blame the 76ers for not wanting to do exactly what that guy wants he had the option he chose to come back Number five, the fifth story. What do you got? Uh, I thought this was a pretty interesting stat here. Uh, it was a tweet from Transfer Portal for Playing Time. It tracks, you know, basketball, college basketball transfer portal and had some stats out. John, did you know this? Of all athletes that have committed to a new program in the transfer portal, only one out of 12 players who transferred this year went up into the portal. So they went from a lower conference to a bigger conference. The rest either had to transfer laterally or down a conference. Now with most of the rosters finalized for college basketball, 45% 
of players who entered the transfer portal this year will not play NCAA basketball in the upcoming 23-24 season. And I think this only it, – it, it's tough to you know say who it affects the most, but I think it's a big issue for high school seniors and junior college players as these small schools are picking up pieces from fallback programs, right? And that's where a lot of these guys, you know, high school seniors, junior college guys go is these smaller programs, but they go out and they get, you know, pickings from a Pac-12 school. And then they run out of room for incoming freshmen. And then at these large schools, they're asking a lot of these freshmen to be preferred walk-ons in order to get some of these freshmen to their programs. I, you know, I like, you know, transfer portal is fine. I think it's all fine and great that you have a chance to learn from your mistake of where you wanted to go. But it's sad when I see 45% of guys who enter the transfer portal, their college basketball career is done when they could have just stayed at their school and played for the next season. Yeah, I keep watching the portal going, you know, who's still in there? And it kind of reminds me a little bit about players who declare for the NBA draft, although it's gotten better in recent years with the ability to, you know, return to school. But there's a lot of disillusionment. There's a lot of, the, hey, the grass is greener. And a lot of players will jump in there not knowing, you know, that they don't have options. And they would have been better off staying right where they are. Again, I go back to the thing I was, uh, my rant about the contracts. Scholarship's a contract, too. You know, you, uh, I get it. Transfer portal, you can leave. All that's cool. But I think in the end, um, a lot of times kids will leave school, change uniforms. They don't change their circumstances. They're not better off because of it. And I think ultimately we look back and we go, okay, what are we teaching, especially young people in, in the culture of youth sports? Oh, when things go bad, just change your club program. Change your coach. Switch the uniform. Don't work through it. Don't worry. You know, it's there's a lot of bad messaging that's going on out there. Yeah, there's a lot of good that have come with the transfer portal. I mean, you look at Bo Nix. You look at, you know, even DJ Uyunglele, who was a highly talented guy, struggled at Clemson. Now he gets a second chance. But there's a lot of these guys in college basketball, John, especially with the COVID year, they're on their fourth or fifth school. And I don't think ultimately that's good for the sport of college sports, whether it's football or basketball. But at the same time, like you got to give some power to the players as well, and this is what they wanted. They wanted to be able to change schools without punishment. I, there's got to be some type of guideline, but I don't know what you can do. The NCAA has no power in this type of thing. They're just going to let it roll, especially with NIL going on. So it, it's it's a tricky situation. It's just I feel for a lot of these high school seniors and junior college guys. You know, as a community college guy, like I like to look out for those. Like I think that's a great option for kids is to go to a lower school or a community college, junior college to play, get your school paid for. But it seems like. The only way you're going to get there is if you're a you know, four- or five-star guy. It's the only way you're going to play now. I think there's so much to be learned from continuity. And all the coaching staffs in college football that overachieve, uh, you know, we look at the continuity of a coaching staff and the value of it in building culture and retention. You know, don't be afraid to let your coaching staff get to know you. Stick around. Fight through some adversity. Those are the good stories that we don't get to see uh, often these days anymore. Uh, all right, coming up, uh, we'll talk about the college football season. Bo Nix, DJ Uyunglele, who are the key players at Oregon State and Oregon and the key games this season? We'll play a little game within that. you got the BFT. I'm always, uh, always interested in the psychological, I don't want to say games, but psychological approach that coaches and players use. I think the rest of us can learn from coaches and players, watching them, how they approach their jobs. There's a lot of pressure that's very visible, the job of an athlete, the job of a coach, the relationships that come, the team building that we see being done. And so I was really interested 
with the 49ers over the weekend. I don't know how much preseason game uh, you watch, but the Niners um, had a kicker that they picked in the third round of the draft, number 99 overall. And they were going to replace Robbie Gould with Jake Moody. Now, he was the first kick in, kicker taken, earliest kicker selected since 2016. And uh, Michigan kid comes into his first preseason game on Sunday against uh, the Las Vegas Raiders. And he misses a 58-yard field goal. Tough position, 58 yards. But Kyle Shanahan said after the game, hey, he's been making those. In practice, missed a 58-yarder, then he missed a 40-yarder. Now, Shanahan said he's not going to talk to the kicker during the week. Doesn't want to put pressure on him. Knows the pressure's on him. He missed two. He's been great in practice. He hits them all. I'm going to leave him alone. I know he's going to make kicks later. There's no pressure. I'm not worried about him. Now, he missed uh, a 40-yarder wide left on the first uh, final play of the first half. Then in the fourth quarter, he uh, missed a 58-yarder wide right. Moody told reporters after, saying, um, it's something to learn from. We're just going to go through a different routine, I guess, to deal with the extra time between the kick, but a lot of good learning experiences for the first game. Um, uh, there's gonna put some, it's gonna, he's going to have enough pressure on him, being the guy that was taken third. Oh, uh, I mean, excuse me, in the third round, the first kicker to go. go. He's going to have that, but Robbie Gold has been automatic for the Niners in the last six seasons. He made 27 of 32 on field goal attempts last year and was perfect in the postseason during his six seasons with the Niners. Eight for eight on field goals, five for five on PATs in the playoffs last year alone. Um, this this uh, Moody kid is a good kicker. Is Kyle Shanahan putting more pressure on him by telling media members he's not going to talk to him, he's not worried about it? Or should he have said, yeah, I talked to him. I told him, not. don't worry about it. I feel like he's trying to not draw attention to him, but he's actually drawing attention to him. I uh, I agree with you. I think he is I think he, I think he is drawing more attention to it by saying he's not talking to him. It's not a big deal. But I also think that this is what he wants because he needs to have some pressure on him. And he needs to have his back against the wall. Guess what? If he's not the guy... You, know, you go back you know, and get Robbie Gold. Get a guy who makes field goals. Because the 49ers are one of those teams, John, you know, you know this, one of the best defenses in the, in the league. You don't necessarily need touchdowns in every possession. So you just need points. And if you can't have a consistent kicker and he's missing field goals, you can't trust that guy. I think Kyle Shanahan is playing these games where he's trying to make it so Jake Moody you know, is mentally strong and mentally tough here now that he's in the professional NFL league. Like, you got to be making field goals. You can't be missing these, you know, missing three points. I think he's playing games not only with the media, but with Jake Moody himself to make sure, you know, kind of test him a little bit. I mean, I, I, I at first glance I went, oh, I kind of like the idea that he's saying it's not a big deal. Then I read his actual comments and I went, well, he's actually putting pressure on the kid by saying, I'm not going to talk to him because I don't want to put additional pressure on him. You don't think Moody's going to be like, hey, my coach hasn't talked to me but, all week long. But also, what is he going to say? Like, hey, you know, I'm a kicking expert. You need to move your plant yeah. foot a little forward. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't have any criticism of him. He can just say, hey, yeah. make kicks. Shanahan actually said that. He, says, he said what, he's going to just make something up when I asked him what happened. Because, you know, because <laughs> a kicker's going to be like, well, you know, it was my, it was my uh, fifth metatarsal on my plant foot. That I, I just had, uh, I didn't have the right grip on it. You know, it's like he it, it, just missed. Sometimes you just miss, and that and that's the thing. Like some, like I've talked to players before. I've talked to hitters in baseball. I've talked to uh, you know defensive backs in football. Uh, I've talked uh, you know with golfers. 
and and you'll say, you know, if they're really comfortable in being honest with you, they'll sometimes go, yeah, I just missed the tackle. Or, you know what, I just missed it. It was a good pitch to hit, I just missed it. Or, you know what, I had a good look, and I just missed the shot. Like, sometimes you can get in your own head a little bit by trying to overanalyze the mistake. And I think that's the danger with a young player like Moody, who already has pressure on him by virtue of the fact that he's, you know, he was the first kicker taken in the draft. He's taken in the third round by a team that plays lights-out defense and relies upon the kicker to get points when when they're in field goal range. So be interesting to see how that unfolds. Um, Really nice to see Jaden Grant, Oregon State player, friend of this show on defense for the Las Vegas Raiders, number 40 in your program. Kind of cool to see that. Uh, Any other takeaways for you in the NFL preseason? Um, I like that C.J. Stroud threw an interception on his first drive, and then there was a lot of people jumping off the cliff saying, "You know, what? he's not the guy. He's not. You know, let's just calm down a little bit. Uh, preseason football, and you're the Houston Texans. I mean, just uh, give him a little bit of patience. But no, I mean, I think that's the thing is, you know, it's fun to watch football be back. Like you love to watch football on the field, but especially in preseason NFL. I mean, you take it in all sports, but the NFL, I think especially. Take it with a grain of salt of what's going on. I did see that the Ravens, though, John, continued their winning streak. I believe they're up to 26 straight mm. preseason victories. Uh, that's got to be just the coaching staff, right? I mean, Harbaugh, he's uh, one of those guys that actually wants to win these preseason games and takes them seriously, I think. That has to be your coach because, yeah, a lot of people not trying to win. Bryce Young uh, struggling. Uh, Derek Carr went uh, played well for the Saints in his debut there. Raiders looked really good. The Raiders are not that good, and the Niners are not that bad. Um, uh, Demar Hamlin got on the field, yeah, first time since uh, you know suffering a cardiac arrest, and uh, he, you know they they won the game, but it was just nice to see him on the field. And uh, the Ravens, you mentioned twenty to nineteen winners, but uh, I don't know Trey Lance. You know, I, I was watching him a little bit for the Niners. Three and out on the first three series. Backup offensive line, tough to say. But he's, I thought he struggled a little bit. The the ball wasn't getting out of his hands on time, and I just thought it didn't look – it looked clunky to me. And I, I don't know if it was preseason or if uh, if there's something not quite right with Trey Lance. Is that uh, is that news correlated with the news that Brock Purdy now has been cleared to practice uh, without Could an be. off day? That he's able to participate in three practices in a row without that built-in off day uh, seems like they're really going to be ramping up Purdy to get ready to go for Week yeah. One against the Steelers. Jets looked good. Zach Wilson, you know, he they, looked uh, all right. Jets just picked up Dalvin Cook. I don't know if you saw that. They just picked him up a little bit ago, maybe an hour ago. Be a little mm. twist on Hard Knocks. You've been watching. You watch Hard Knocks, John? Yeah, a little bit peripherally. I, I'm. I'll get more into it. I'll go back and watch them. I tell you, but... I will say my we or my episode one uh, evaluation was Aaron Rodgers came across as really likable in it, and I don't know if it's going to continue this whole season, but he it was uh, a lot of Aaron Rodgers. I don't want to watch it then. I don't want to like him. How about uh, Jordan Love then, on that note? Packers looked pretty good. Um, he was 7 of 10 for 70 yards and a touchdown, so Packers' offense looks all right with him at quarterback. So. I got a hot take about the Packers. I think the Packers are winning that division. I know there's a mm. lot of hype with the Lions, and the Vikings won 13 games last year, but... The Packers are a really talented team, and Rodgers wasn't great a season ago. Like, even if Jordan Love is average, like, that team is very talented. I think the Packers, I think they got a chance to win that division. They're a little under the radar. How about hot take here? Baker Mayfield wins the quarterback job for the Buccaneers. Whew. That's, uh, that's a rough situation there to be following Tom yeah. Brady. He was 8 of 9, 63 yards, looked pretty good, took care of the ball, didn't turn it over. Um, you know, that's the thing for Baker Mayfield. I mean, he... 
you know, he, he apparently was scattering the ball all over the practice field, throwing the ball to the defense, uh, you know, in the practices. But in the game, he took care of it. So um, it'll be interesting to see if he, he can win a job and, and be in that position. You mentioned C.J. Stroud, two for four with an interception, uh, not not the start he wanted. Um, too soon, though. I mean, I, I, all these games, I was looking at the box scores, Getting a lot of quarterbacks I don't want to see play, playing, getting snaps, you know. And so I think we need uh, – I need a bigger sample size. Of course, we need to get closer to the season. But I think my biggest takeaway was just DeMar Hamlin and breaking a sweat in a uniform. It was just like, okay, that story is not going to get old every no. time I see that guy on the field. Do you think there's a chance at some point – I mean, DeMar Hamlin, it's not as if he's a bad player, but he wasn't ever a superstar player. What's going to happen when he's put in this position where the Bills maybe have to have to make a choice on if he stays on the roster or not? That's going to be a tough choice by Buffalo. It will be, but I already I actually think like the pressure's off them now that you know he's been at the stadium, he's been on the field, he's played in a preseason game. Yes, um, I think you know if he's not the best player, maybe you still start him early in the season this year. But I think at some point, DeMar Hamlin's going to have a career that goes way beyond football. I just think he becomes spokesperson for the American Heart Association, spokesperson for, you know, the NFL uh, cares, you know, uh, the NFL's charity, charitable arm. He just, I think he's got such a connection and such a relationship with the NFL viewers that uh, I think it goes, it transcends football at this point. So I won't be surprised if that happens. I, st- I still would like, it's funny though that I- I've seen clips this off season of games of like early last year there there was in fact i was watching the quarterback series on netflix and there was a game where buff one of the teams was playing buffalo i think kansas city was playing buffalo and man it just jumped out at me demar hamlin's on the field and he's playing you know he's playing in that game and i was like wow like i never noticed him before and now i can't stop looking at him when he's on the field so really cool to kind of see that as what, it unfolds what is your take on the quarterback's you know, not necessarily playing in the preseason. I know Patrick Mahomes says he wants to get out there a little bit, take a first hit, but uh, for the most part, a lot of these quarterbacks don't play. Do you think that's good for you know the first couple of weeks in the NFL season, and you know because they're not going to get hurt, or is it going to be a little rough go? Maybe the team should put the quarterbacks out there for a series well, or two. You the- tell me. I mean, I think if they get hurt, then it's a stupid play by their team. I mean, right. I, it, that's just as simple as that. They should not be out there any more than they have to be, but. It's true. Some of the players, some of the quarterbacks will tell you that they like to get in rhythm and they need more than just four pass attempts to do that. They need multiple series and like like the Niners need to get Trey Lance some reps. They need to see him. Even if it's three and out, three and out, three and out, you need to see him. Even if it's with a second string offensive line and there and that is fraught with risk when you have a second string offensive line that is on the field because, you know, who knows who they're lining up against on the other side of the ball and you're one blown assignment away from another season-ending injury. When you talk about the offensive line, like these guys, we think about like you know it's a second-string offensive line. Yeah, they don't get a lot of reps together. When when teams are practicing, it's the ones, it's the two. Like these guys hardly play together. And then you throw them out in a game. They're supposed to be a cohesive unit. Like you are really risking your quarterbacks if you put them out there in preseason. So I, I'm with yeah. you. Like they shouldn't be going out there as much as possible. If you're putting your Number one quarterback out there, you got to have a good offensive line out there as well. Like, you can't risk that injury, but you're right. With well, like a guy like Trey Lance, you know, you got to put him out there to see what he can do. And uh, if he can't do it, you know, they may have to end up trading him. And it I, looks like they may have to do that with uh, Trey Lance. I asked Mario Cristobal and Jonathan Smith this a couple of years ago. I said, you know, why don't colleges play a preseason game? You know, if it's so important for the NFL, you know, and th- there's such value in this, why aren't the colleges doing it? And 
Jonathan Smith said that he would love to have a uh, like a scrimmage against Oregon and let you know like have that scrimmage against somebody that's not your team to kind of get a look at how your guys react and and do that thing or maybe you could do it against Portland State or you know he'd love to have that kind of scrimmage but they won't allow it like you know the NCAA will allow you some limited interaction but they won't allow it because they count it as a you know a competition more or less and they have rules against it so it's really interesting to me that the NFL places such an emphasis on these preseason games and yet we don't see the star players often playing you know in the first week sometimes not in the second week or very sparingly and and then the colleges what do they do I mean they scrimmage a couple times Oregon State had a scrimmage over the weekend DJ Uyunglele all the people who saw the scrimmage come out of it saying Oh, he was terrific. It was a clinic. He's won the starting job. He's done all this. Like, nobody saw it except people who were there. And, you know, and I'm relying on the people who were there who were saying, hey, it was really impressive. He looked great. He, he looked like, you know, everybody expected he might look best-case scenario. That's great, but it's not a preseason game. And so it's just a scrimmage against his own team. We kind of don't know. And that's why in college football, I think more so than the NFL, we get really screwy and squirrely outcomes in week one and week two, especially when these teams play each other. And it's not like a, hey, we're so much better. We're going to win this game no matter what. It's just a matter of how do we look. Like Oregon's going to play Portland State. Okay? Portland State's not beating Oregon at Autzen Stadium in week one. Like Oregon could be off that day. It could, they could have some breakdowns. They could be have some learning moments. They're still going to win that game. But, you know, conversely, you get some, you know, Florida State playing LSU in the opening week. It's five against eight in the AP Top 25 poll. This is essentially a preseason game featuring all the starters, and good luck to us all. Like, it's it's really weird to me, and I think it's why you get some weird outcomes week one, week two, especially in non-conference play. You get some really strange things that happen. Keep an eye on it. I mean, if you're if you're a team like Florida State and LSU, why are you even scheduling that game, John? Like, what, what's the point of it? Money. Money. It's probably money. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, it's, like, it's like Oregon playing Georgia, you know, in week one a year ago. You know, Oregon was paid, I think, $3 million bucks to play that game. And, you know, I think Georgia got $5 million. But even like they, the Oregon week it for two money. game at Texas Tech, like, I mean... What, yeah. What's the upside of that? Like you beat you beat Texas Tech, who's going to be probably a middle to above average team in the Big Twelve. Does it really elevate your profile to be a college football playoff team? I don't think that it does. I think it will help depending on what Texas Tech does after, but it's it's got some risk, especially that it's on the road. Uh, I'll even point this one out: Auburn's going to Berkeley in Week Two to play Cal, mm. middle of the road SEC team that everybody thinks is going to win six or seven games playing at Cal against Justin Wilcox, who wins a game every year he has no business winning. And no one's going to be in that stadium. It's going to be empty at Cal's home stadium. The atmosphere will be flat. I kind of think Auburn's going to come in there as a heavy favorite, and I won't be surprised if Cal gives him hell. Is it going to be a week two? And if it's a Pac-12 after dark game, I mean, that's a late kickoff. Things would get weird up there to Berserkly. I mean, it's, it's just yeah, it's yeah. brutal. It's that I looked at that game. It jumped off me at the you know I've stared at the Pac-12 schedule for a long time. That Auburn at Cal game in week two, jumping out to me upset special. I I can't wait to see the spread on that game. All right, we're going to talk about the Pac-12, Oregon and Oregon State specifically next. Well, we got uh, big football games coming up next week in college football, the week zero games, and then after that, uh, obviously a week one featuring Oregon's home game. 
at Autzen Stadium against Portland State. And then, um, obviously, uh, Oregon State will open their season on Sunday at San Jose State. So uh, we're uh, headed towards all that stuff. Feels like it's going to happen really fast. It, it felt like the football season was far away. And then all of a sudden I looked up and I was like, you know what? We are like uh, closing in on this stuff. We're like a couple weeks away from from seeing games. So uh, uh, Utah will open their season on a Thursday against uh, Florida in the Pac-12. Uh, so that is coming up uh, two weeks from Thursday. So we got a lot to talk about. Um, key players uh, at Oregon, at Oregon State, things we want to learn. Um, the report's coming out Sunday uh, and over the weekend from Oregon State's scrimmage, we're all about DJ Uyunglele and him being uh, a guy who has uh, seemingly grabbed hold of the quarterback position at Oregon State. Nick Daschle, friend of this show who covers Oregon State, texted me on Sunday. He was heading back from practice or watching the scrimmage, and he was like, DJ, just a clinic, a two-hour clinic. Uh, running that scrimmage, which is really interesting and I think good to hear from an Oregon State standpoint. Because ideally for Oregon State, you're not throwing Austin, uh, excuse me, Austin, Aiden Childs out onto the field as a freshman early in the season. If he ends up on the field, you want him on the field because he's, you know, just come on late in the season and made uh, the coaching staff's job difficult. But it looks like DJ, it right now, if the season were to start today, is the starter at Oregon State and the guy in the driver's seat, Ben Gulbrinson backing him up, likely Aiden Childs, maybe redshirting, I don't know. But there's uh, no official announcement out of Oregon State yet. Meanwhile, at Oregon, just a foregone conclusion that it's going to be Bo Nix. So people keep asking me, like, who are the key players? Who are the key players? The key players are still the quarterbacks. They still are. It's a quarterback-centric game. Oregon State's going to have to get stronger play out of the quarterback position than it did a year ago, particularly early in the season with Chance Nolan. Uh, and, and Oregon needs to see that there's a cohesive rhythm between Will Stein, the new offensive coordinator, and Bo Nix, the quarterback. Now, I suspect the ball's going to be flying all over the stadium. I think Oregon's going to have no problem moving the ball. They've got a swath of wide receivers. The guy I'm interested in seeing, apologies to Bucky Irving, who just, you know, runs and runs and runs and is effective and effective and effective and never gets any, you know, uh, frontline uh, marquee highlight name and name and lights. He doesn't get it all the time. He doesn't get it as much as he deserves it. But I think it's the role he plays in the Oregon offense. But the guy I'm really interested to see is Troy Franklin a year later. Like I saw him in the spring game. I think he's going to be that guy for Bo Nix. And I think we're going to be hearing Bo Nix to Troy Franklin big time plays throughout the Oregon season. So, I'm eager to see that from Go, particularly in Week 2. Like I've been looking at the schedule for every Pac-12 team, and I'm about to come out with something at johnconzano.com on all the Pac-12 teams. And one of the things I did is I said, you know, what everybody thinks is the key to the season, and then really what's the key to the season? You know, and like at Oregon, everybody thinks the defense and the identity on the defense is the key to the season. I disagree with that. I still think it has to do with Bo Nix and the offense that they've got to keep that guy healthy and, and whatnot. But then I also have a uh, feature as part of my look at the Pac-12 where I say, hey, we find out about this team. Like, we find out if they're real. We find out if they're a contender. We find out if they're a pretender. We find out who they are. Well, Oregon's we find out who they are moment, to me, comes in week two. They go to Lubbock. They go to Texas Tech. It's not an easy place to get to. 
it's not a bad team, and it's a road game in a world where we all know it's difficult enough to win. It's really difficult to win on the road in college football. If Oregon's going to be worth a damn, we're going to find out who they are in week two when they go to Lubbock. And, and it won't be week four at home against Colorado. It won't be, you know, week 12 against Oregon State at home. It's not going to be that late. We're going to find out who Oregon is in that Texas Tech game. We're going to find out pretty early in the season what what they are and who they are. And I, I'm not saying that they're going to be playing their best football. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying, like, you kind of gonna, you're going to kind of figure out who they are in that game. And at Oregon State, I think the find out who they are moment comes in week five on a Friday night against Utah at home at Reeser Stadium. Because I think it's going to be, I'm not going to say easy, but I think it's going to be very likely that Oregon State beats San Jose State in the opener, beats Davis in week two, beats San Diego State at home in week three, wins on the road in Pullman in week four, comes home for the Friday night game short week against Kyle Whittingham and the defending two-time champion Utah Utes. It is the earliest crossover game in conference play between two contenders. Happens at Reeser Stadium where the Beavers are happen to be 11-1 and in their last 12 home games. And I just think that's the moment for Oregon State. We find out who they are in Week 5. Oregon, it happens faster. It's Week 2. It's Lubbock, Texas. I will be there for that game. I want to see it up close, see it for myself. Uh, and I will, of course, be for the uh, at the Utah game on the Friday night to see Oregon State uh, playing at home at Reister Stadium against Utah. But that's it right there. Those two things, the two quarterbacks, uh, you know, points, a lot of points in the Pac-12 this season. I think we found out last year that, yeah, yes, defenses are a big part of, of football. You know, people always say defenses win championships and all that stuff, but I think the offenses are so potent in the Pac-12, you better be on your game or teams will just outscore you. And that's I think that's part of it. And I think Oregon and Oregon State are both going to have fun seasons. Steven, what, when I, as I say that, DJ Uingalele, Bo Nix, Troy Franklin, the two games where we find out who they are, what jumps out at you? Yeah, I mean, that Texas Tech game, I uh, if I'm a Duck fan, I'm worried about that one. I, the more I read about Texas Tech, the more that I like them. They return a lot on offense. I do think it's going to be a high-scoring game. So I don't think the offense for Oregon is going to have a problem. I just think ultimately that could be a really tough game. I think Bo Nix, you know, he, he has to prove that he can do it without that offensive line. I think we maybe underestimate the loss of the offensive line a little bit. You know, Last season, maybe the best offensive line in, in the conference, them in Oregon State, probably the top two. Oregon lost a lot on that line. So we'll see how Bo Nix, how he can do uh, with a brand-new offensive line. I think that's important to watch. And then with DJ... I mean, I think the first game is important. I think the first game is going to be tough against San Jose State. It's going to be a all eyes on me. Uh, it's the only college football game on at the time. Everybody in the nation is going to watch him because they've heard of DJ Uyunglele, and I think it's going to be a fun watch. I, I I love to hear all the good stuff coming out of Corvallis about him, but it's one of those things, John, where I need to see it before I believe it because I saw him play at Clemson. He put up some nice stats, put up some good games, but there's a lot to be left uh, wanting more, and I need to see it out of DJ. So I think real early on we're going to find out what these two quarterbacks could do. Speaking of uh, real early on, this radio show will go on the road during the Pac-12 season. Week one, we will be in Salt Lake City broadcasting live. I will take the show then after Utah's opener against Florida uh, to the Bay Area in front of San Jose State, Oregon State, which is uh, opening that weekend. Uh, And then obviously the following week, we'll be in Lubbock, Texas for the Oregon-Texas Tech game. This show will go where the action is, and uh, you'll be along with it. 
Tomorrow we have a great show. We'll focus more on the games, the players, the teams. Appreciate everybody who makes this radio show part of their day. If you want to read me, read me at johnconzano.com.